Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Right on it's Friday. Friday. We made it. We made it to Friday. Another well, you Friday. had a short week, though. I did have a short week, but it was still weird coming, jumping into the country, and all of a sudden you're back into the U.S. and all of a sudden. What's the stuff. time difference? Like five, six hours? Yeah, it's six hour time difference in um, Vienna. It's five hours in London. Oh, yeah. So it's like you're like bouncing back and forth like a little ping pong. Do you pong. still feel like you're ahead? No, because I've been sleeping a lot recently. <laughs> it's like it's like my body's trying to play catch up on sleep right. and food and everything else. I've been eating like a pig and, and sleeping a lot. But all things been equal, no. It's 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 interesting being back. Well, you just have this shift all of a sudden. Like it's like you have this kind of European architecture and everything else, and you're back into DC. And there's this kind of odd thing where it feels like the two weeks never happen. It's just very like it strange. Never it's like it becomes this dream-like thing. That I don't you're know if you saw my comment on your on your. Instagram at the some of the the pictures you yeah. took of like the cities. Yeah. And I said, why is everyone else's architecture more interesting it than is ours? Gorgeous, but it's been there for like a thousand years. Well, <laughs> it's been there for like but forever. there's like a mishmash, right? Of like yeah. this thousand year architecture, and then there's like brand new, yeah. like weird morphe buildings and stuff. It's yeah. super strange. I mean, even when you we don't have that here. But even if you go to somewhere like Italy, and it's like you oh, walk out, you have it. the Roman Colosseum. Love it. Then it's then a huge new, skyscraper right. or something like that. It's super weird. I love it. I love it too. I love seeing that, but we don't tend to have that here. Well, we're a young country. I know. I mean, I mean, yeah, relative yeah. to everyone else. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, because you can go back to British history, like thousands of years. I remember watching this documentary. It was like a thousand years of British history, and it's like <laughs> a thousand years, and they're like going through item by item by item. Yeah, it's you're just like, insane. Oh, we don't have that. Yeah, but it's it's a very weird mess, and I agree with you. I love it. It's like you walk out, you're sitting at a coffee shop. And the Coliseum is right there. Right. It's right. super it's like bizarre. You're sitting in history. Yeah. And yeah, there are a couple places here that are 200 years old or right. whatever. But for the most part, anything that we have in America that's over, like, let's say, 100 years old right. is basically off limits to the, to the public. <laughs> right. right. So can't touch it. you can't even go near it, much yeah. less sit in it and have coffee. Like Egypt is like that, too. Well, you have, well, Egypt is a little different, but just because of the pyramids and everything, they're so far away from See, locations. Egypt, but I would imagine that's kind of crazy it's to look for, at. It is super weird. You're thousands standing there, you're thinking to yourself, 5,000 years right, ago, right? people were mulling around. Doing, it's so, it's a head trip trying to get your head around that stuff. It's very bizarre. Or if you believe humans built them. That's the question, right? See, I can get with you on that one. Because <laughs> yeah, they try to explain. They vibe you on that one, the pyramids, yeah. where I'm like, mm, Well, they I try to know. explain in Egypt. It was like, okay, well, we use a system to get from point A to point B. It's like, right, okay, well, how long did it take to get a brick? And it's right? like, how it took that long to get a brick? And you built this thing, and it's this perfect, and it, oh, it's, yeah. Right, it matches. You start scratching your head when the person's telling you. The top of the pyramid you. points to, like, this constellation, yeah. and you're like, mm. And it's like off by just like what? a tiny, tiny fraction of uh, technology. It's amazing when you hear that stuff. And yeah, you start thinking, okay, did you guys really do this? Right. That's see, I can I can get on your vibe. Yeah. For Egypt. <laughs> right. Right. Or like Stonehenge. Yeah. I haven't seen Stonehenge yet. That's one of the places I'd like to go. It's to. It's like the middle of nowhere. Have you been there? Yeah. It's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, yeah. It's the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But like, how do you get those how do you bricks get those stones? arranged that way? Yeah. 
right? Like it's one thing if there's a river nearby, you can say, okay, well they took the river, then they use um, these kind yeah, of building even, things, you know, the little bit and stuff like river. that. But after a while, it's like, okay, but there was no river here. How did you get these bricks from point A to point B? These things are massive size bricks. These things are bigger than cars. Right. I think I need to go see the pyramids in Mexico first because that's closer. Yeah. I think I can get there. Physically fit, but yes. I think I can get there. Yeah. Uh, I'll go with you on that trip. But the same thing. The pyramids in Mexico point to certain constellations. And then if you look at the map of pyramids around the world, they... Metal one has the snake right? or something. It has the dragon that shows that at a certain point. It's like the summer solstice or something like that. And then it's like a dragon showing on the wall and all this yeah, stuff. I it's haven't per- looked too much into it, but I know that, that the it's almost like it was coordinated. Yeah. Where the, the pyramids around the world. There's pyramids in Asia. Right. Yes. Yes. Like Central Nepal, Asia. Yep. I've been to those. They have those pyramids in Nepal. Those things are everywhere around the globe. That's and weird. they tend to point to like constellations. Yes. Like it's almost like there's a unique focus upon the sky. And, and that unique focus on the sky. And that, of course, breeds questions, right? Why were they so focused on the sky? Right. And what were they trying to yes. contact? Why were they wearing those weird-looking masks in Africa when they were dancing around? It's like all of those questions just starts to pop up. And it's up. not like these people could phone each other up to be like, hey, let's exactly. build this pyramid. Oh, what color are you using? What right. kind of snow? Oh, it wasn't that way. they just all of a sudden, all of them Everyone were doing just, it. Yeah, on every continent, there's pyramids. pyramids. It's super weird. And I've not seen any of them. You haven't seen any of those? Not one pyramid anywhere in the world. So that's like my next goal. Yeah. Mexico is the closest. There's a lot of energy. I mean, it's like walking and everything else. Yeah, I've heard. So I I would like to see that. Uh, Before I get too old and the arthritis kicks in too much, um, I'd like to do that. But, you know, otherwise, I've been to Luxor in Las Vegas. Oh, nice. (laughs) That's still a nice pyramid. That's a pyramid. You can win some money at that pyramid. I mean, that's technically a pyramid. So, you know, that's that's the closest I've been to any pyramid is Luxor in Las Vegas. But You can win cash at that point. Yeah, so I would like to to do that. And I'll let you know if if my husband and I decide to take this trip. Because very soon, my son is, you know, he's getting out of toddler. How old old is your son? He's three. He'll be four next month. So Drag him along. No! You don't think so? No, absolutely not. Well, my ex-wife and I were talking about having a kid. I thought was drag that kid along. No. No, when they're they're small and you can strap them to your chest or on your back like a backpack. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. Take that thing along. But when they get to this age, when they're a little bit too big to just cart on your chest or on, you know, carry on your shoulders. Because now you're talking about 40 pounds. So you basically have to wait till they get six or eight or seven. Where where they can hang and walk with you. They can't do that yet at like four or five. Uh, That's true. That's true. They're like eight or nine. They can sort of like keep up. up. But at at this young, no. I just think now they're just like little mini terrorists. I just think for kids, it is such an amazing experience for them to be able to experience that stuff at such a young age. And yeah, I wonder what... they won't really remember it anyway. So when you're about yeah, seven, eight, nine, you start remembering things. Yeah. But yeah, at this age, at, at three, four, it's oh, no. It's not going to stick. Oh, no. It's just going to be a no, pain. No, they will control your Dragon trip. From point A to point B. They will control your trip. They will dictate, forget plans. Yeah. They will tell you what's going to be on your calendar that day. Ugh. Yeah, so eh, zero chance. That's why I don't want kids, along. man. No. No. I wanted a selfish existence of being able That's to do okay whatever too. I wanted. That's okay, too. I yeah. thought I wanted that for a long time. That's why I started late. Uh, and we're starting late with the news. So yes. let me shut up and get to the news. All right. With some domestic news, let's start there. President Joe Biden's son, one Hunter Biden. I heard Jamal chuckle there. He has just asked a court to cut his child support payments, claiming he's having some money troubles. 
According to the Daily Mail, reporting Thursday that Hunter Biden's Texas-based attorney, Brent Langdon, has filed a motion with the Independence County Circuit Court in Arkansas on Monday, asking for his client's payments to be revised. Langdon claimed that Biden had suffered a, quote, substantial material change in his financial circumstances, including but not limited to his income. The 52-year-old has been paying child support to 31-year-old Arkansas resident London Roberts after fathering her four-year-old daughter, which they call Navy Joan. Born in 2018, Biden has actually never met his little baby daughter that he fathered. And then over to Texas, Governor Greg Abbott has lambasted the Biden administration for continuing to turn a blind eye to the crisis at the southern border and says they're failing to do its job. The Republican governor's office did not mince words when responding to White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre's assertion that GOP governors were performing, quote, an illegal stunt because of sending migrants to places like Martha's Vineyard and Washington, D.C., you know, in front of Kamala Harris's house. Quote, the White House is full of a bunch of hypocrites led by the hypocrite in chief who has been flying plane loads of migrants across the country and oftentimes under the cover of night, says Greg Abbott's press secretary, Renee Ezzi, being cited by Fox News Digital. The press secretary clarified that all the migrants transported by Abbott had willingly signed a waiver form available in a number of languages before boarding those buses. Then speaking to conservative talk show host Hugh Hewitt, ahead of his rally near Youngstown, Ohio, scheduled for later in the week, Donald Trump was asked if he thinks he will be indicted over the classified documents that the FBI seized from Mar-a-Lago in Florida. The former president replied that he does not think he will be indicted because he has, quote, done nothing wrong. He says, quote, well, there's no reason that they can other than if they're just sick and deranged, which is always possible because I did absolutely, you've seen the legal papers, absolutely nothing wrong. And there's no reason that they can do that. And the Biden administration is setting up closer cooperation with northeastern states to avoid, quote, unanticipated energy disruptions, says the U.S. Energy Department, announcing in a statement from a meeting between Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm and the governors of six states in the New England region. Quote, the purpose of the meeting was to strengthen partnerships and increase collaboration on developing solutions to achieve our shared commitment to do everything possible to mitigate and avoid unanticipated energy disruption. The governors requested a joint meeting with Granholm to discuss the crisis in a letter that they sent to her back in July. And the recent substantial turmoil in the cryptocurrency markets shows that digital assets risk harming the U.S.'s financial stability and national security, says White House National Economic Council Director Brian Deese. He said, We've seen in recent months substantial turmoil in cryptocurrency markets, and these events 
really highlight how without proper oversight, cryptocurrencies risk harming everyday Americans' financial stability and our national security. That's Brian Deese talking to reporters. The Biden administration is recommending that U.S. regulators and law enforcement agencies redouble efforts to crack down on illicit cryptocurrency activity here in the U.S. Then Senator Tammy Baldwin, Democrat from Wisconsin, told reporters Thursday that the Respect for Marriage Act, which she has sponsored, would not be voted on until after the November 2022 midterm elections when Democrats hope to have a stronger majority in the upper congressional chamber. Quote, I'm still very confident that the bill will pass, but we will be taking the bill up later after the election. We will be putting out a joint statement, says Baldwin. The bill would enshrine the right of same-gender couples to marry as well as repeal the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act, known as DOMA, which banned same-gender marriage. Democrats rushed to pass the bill after the Supreme Court signaled in the Dobbs v. Jackson decision in June that the right of gays, lesbians, and bisexuals to marry could soon be on the chopping block. That decision struck down the federal right to abortion. Then international news, the Biden administration has deepened its partnership with Taiwan and is planning to conduct supporting the Chinese province diplomatically, economically, and militarily amid ongoing tensions with Beijing, says State Department spokesman Ned Price on Thursday, quote, for our part, the Biden administration, we have deepened our partnership with Taiwan, will continue to do so with effective diplomatic, economic, and military support. The Biden administration appreciates the strong bipartisan support for Taiwan it has seen in Congress and across the U.S., added Mr. Price. Then Finnish President Sali Ninisto has said he would consider further tightening visa restrictions on Russians. Although rules governing the issuance of tourist visas to Russians have already been tightened, lawmakers should consider removing a clause that fast-tracks the granting of visas to property owners in Finland, Nanisto says at an event hosted by the Association of Political Journalists. The Norwegian oil and gas giant Equinor has sounded the alarm about unknown drone activity around at least three of the company's platforms in the North Sea. The observations were reported to the police and the Petroleum Safety Authority, yet the company remains rather tight-lipped about the occurrence. Quote, We have observed unidentified drones at several of our installations. The observations have been reported to the Norwegian authorities, says Equinor's press officer Eskil Eriksson, talking to the Norwegian news outlet Aldri Mayer. Then Argentine Vice President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner on Thursday made the first public statement about the assassination attempt on her and thanked God She's still alive. Quote, I am alive thanks to God and the Blessed Virgin Mary. Pope Francis called me. We spoke on the phone. He told me that acts of hatred and cruelty are always preceded by words and expressions of hatred. Then aggression grows and grows and outgrows. Kirchner stopped her speech, adding that she didn't want to talk about that day anymore. She said these words were at a meeting with some priests. 
Then Qatari authorities have turned down an Israeli request conveyed through FIFA to open a consulate in Doha to help Israelis during the FIFA World Cup in the kingdom. The Al Arabi Al Jadid news portal reporting this on Thursday, citing sources, quote, Israel had submitted requests through FIFA to open a consulate to assist Israelis in case of need during the cup in Qatar, but Doha has rejected the request, the source telling the newspaper. Now, Jabar El Hirimi, the former editor-in-chief at the Al Arab newspaper, confirmed that information on Twitter. Then this day in history, back in 1908, the General Motors Corporation is founded. In 1940, FDR signs the Selective Training and Service Act. That is the first peacetime, peacetime draft. In 1974, President Gerald Ford announced conditional amnesty for U.S.-Vietnam War deserters. In 1982, the massacre of more than a 1,000 Palestinian refugees at Chatila and Sabra begins. Then in 1997, Apple Computer Inc. names co-founder Steve Jobs interim CEO. You remember, there was a lot of drama there. He founded the company, then they kicked him out, then they begged him to come back, then he blew up Apple to what it is today, and obviously he passed away uh, due to cancer. Uh, But yeah, 1997, this day changed a lot of stuff uh, in the tech world. All right, that's going to do it for your headlines this Friday, September 16th. You are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Right on. I want to get into the monologue. There is an interesting comment by Kirby. And sometimes I'm always astonished by these comments. U.S. warns China against doing any business with Russia. And he basically makes the point of saying cooperation with Vladimir Putin is leaving China isolated. Is China really isolated? They were just at the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement. You have the BRIC nations, and this is representative of what, 40, 50% of the globe? This does not seem like isolation to me, but maybe my understanding of what the term isolation means is flawed. I don't think so though. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host Manila Chan coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. And I will have two, I guess, interrelated stories that I kind of want to discuss. One has to do with this Kirby comment about China and isolating themselves, which is an astonishing comment. Do you honestly believe that China is being isolated? Think about all of it. If you're wearing underwear right now, you're probably getting those underwear from China. If you're getting microchips, if you're getting sand for those microchips to take place in the first place, if you're buying goods, materials, et cetera, that stuff is coming from China. When you're looking at the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement, when you're looking at BRIC nations, who do you think? are the beating hearts of those organizations where you're talking about the Belt and Road Initiatives where all of these countries are petitioning and sign up to get involved. This does not look like isolation to me. This looks like the opposite of isolation. And if indeed it's the opposite of isolation, then you must have to actually think about, well, what about the West? Is the West isolating itself? I mean, if you think about it, the people who jumped in on this fool's errand just so happened to be either NATO nations or Japan and the United States. That is not the rest of the world, nor is that indicative of the mainstay of the world. You're talking about three-fourths of the globe basically saying, we're staying out of this, and not just staying out of this, reaping the benefits of the losses that the West 
has decided to take. And I'm using the term decided because they are the ones that decided to launch the sanction war. They're the ones that decided to keep pushing NATO to the borders, despite the fact that William Burns profit at this point with the memo yet means that explain all of the situation currently, including the line that all of them forgot when this basically took place, that Russia would have to get involved into a conflict because of the tensions being stoked by this push for NATO membership within Ukraine, not to mention the overthrowing of the government itself. And it's something they wouldn't necessarily want to do. You could say isolation all you want, but what's happening on the ground looks somewhat different. I also want to have this conversation about what is, I think, took place in a Kharkov offensive. And what I want to mean by that is, I think Ukraine and the West is taking the wrong message from that. All things been equal, you have more information that's coming out about this, where even Western papers at this point kind of make the point of saying the repositioning was taking place in advance of the offensive. What I mean by that is, it was very clear early on that the West was sharing information with Ukraine. I think Scott Ritter made the point of saying this was made and built in Brussels and that basically you have a NATO military run by the Ukrainians. Okay, fair enough. But all things being equal, let's just be very clear that you're not able to get that many people out of a region on the fly like that. And what was more likely taking place was a repositioning of forces already in play. At the point where the forces are basically being repositioned, you get Western nations saying, hey, Russians are weak in this area because they're basically monitoring the area and they're feeding intelligence to Ukraine. Ukraine starts an offensive. Russia has a choice. Do you either defend it or do you pull back? In which case they decided to pull back on the territory, putting extreme losses on Ukrainian forces for doing so. The Kherson offensive gets repulsed. That doesn't necessarily go anywhere. But the Western media takes this and says, well, the war has changed. This is the new context of things that Ukraine is now showing that they could still bring the heat or bring the thunder or whatever they want to call it. And again, I want to point out that those forces were basically repositioning. It wasn't a situation where the Ukraine military came up against the Russian military or the Donbass republics. And it wasn't that. It was you basically caught people in a rear guard action as they were leaving and you were able to take territory with heavy losses. Now, if you look at this that way, you say to yourself, okay, we've been able to make these gains. However, this wasn't a situation where we could basically win this outright. That's not the lesson that they took from this. And they've started all sorts of additional offensives that were basically after the fact, where they were basically trying to capitalize on the momentum of the offensive itself. And again, they've been taking heavy losses for this. What is Askal Riverline, the attacks on Krasny Lima, Ogledad, Zaporozhia, all of these were pushed back, including an amphibious assault that was ill-timed, wrong-headed, and basically they paid dearly for, where they tried to get amphibious assault, a helicopter gets shot down, and the rest of the forces basically get destroyed. This is not the message that you should be taking from this. And all things been equal, the Russian military has barricaded itself in a way that is far more defensible position, with the focus still being on the Donbass region. You have attacks by the Wagner Group, and I want to get into this with Mark um, Sloboda. He's going to be here, and I have, I have so many questions on this particular group. But basically, this continued incremental advance and surrounding of the Bakhmut area, which is apparently the linchpin of the Ukrainian defenses in that region. Yes, there are other forces in Kramatorsk, um, Slavyansk, but all things been equal. This particular region seems to be the area to which the Ukrainian military is basically based around. And so the media, like I was pointing out yesterday, 
is hyperventilating over this particular assault. And they, in their minds, think to themselves, the Russian military is exhausted. The Russian military is tired. There's nowhere else for them to go. And with all of the repulsive attacks that have taken place or the repulsing of those attacks, it gets across that that point of view is not indicative of reality and that the point of view I was giving about the people basically pulling away seem more likely to be right. I want to parlay this into this idea of this idea of isolation. And the fact that I'm making here is that the context of the war hasn't necessarily changed. No, on top of the context of the war, not necessarily changing. This notion that you're isolating these governments is nonsense. You weren't even able to isolate Moscow and not just not isolate Moscow with the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement or for that matter, the BRIC nations. Those nations are expanding, meaning your issue of energy production is going to be a brutal, brutal issue that is unresolvable. At the very least, that's the way it looks right now. That is not the same issue that is facing the rest of the world who's decided to take advantage of the fact that you've basically shot yourself in the genitals for the behest of the United States, who does not have the same energy problems nor have that same level of, let's say, potential injury that you yourselves are basically facing in Europe. You have the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement. You have the BRIC nations. You have multiple nations that are basically lining up to join, meaning you are getting the rest of the world organizing themselves into this new economic order that seems to be to their benefit. And some of the countries that are organizing in this will be able to evade some of the sanctions, meaning this ability to isolate Iran that you were able to do for all of those years. That is over with at this point. You threw the kitchen sink at Russia. Russia is now organizing with these groups, including China. And on top of that, Groups that are supposed to be allies of yours that are in military alliances with you, groups like Turkey, or for that matter, like Saudi Arabia, who are also ticket in hand, lining up, let me in, coach, let me in. This is not isolation. This is the rest of the world organizing into something else that is different than isolation. What is isolation is basically you losing your ability for energy production, your industries basically taking a hit because you don't necessarily have energy necessary, your inflation going through the roof with people paying more for issues of food or for that matter, just basic goods. And you're adding on to this by what? Now thinking about sanctioning China as if China is somehow isolated in this? Look, I'm pointing out that if you couldn't necessarily isolate Russia, the idea that you're going to isolate China is nonsense. Think about the African nations lining up to shake Lavrov's sand. Thank you for the energy. Thank you for the food. Thank you for this and thank you for that. Because all things being equal, economic might is one thing, but having the idea of commodities, meaning real physical world objects that you need to put into your stomach or you need to build your houses or for that matter, you need to feed your populations is something completely different. You have economic might, but the economic might is being subverted based on what you are doing right now at this very moment in regards to this particular conflict. And the fact that this particular conflict doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon. And by the way, even if it did end, the situation with the West doesn't change. I was having a conversation with someone the other day. I was making the point that, look, even if this conflict ended today, the issue Associated with the West and the East, meaning the way that Russia and China have basically organized themselves against pressure from Western nations, isn't changing. The energy production, or you could say that Russia is turning its attention to the East, whereas for the most part, the West is going to have to figure out how it's going to make ends meet with no longer having cheap energy in order to keep its economy and its system functioning in the way 
atypically function. The context of the world hasn't changed is the point that I'm trying to make here. Ukraine and many of Western nations, especially newspapers that were looking for any bright spot, is taking the wrong message from this particular assault. And all things have been equal to the idea that China, I don't have no idea how you even said fix your mouth to say it, or for that matter, Moscow, are not isolated. It's the other way around. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm with my co-host, Manila Chan. We're going to be back in a moment with the voice of wisdom and truth, Mark Sloboda. Can't wait to talk to him. Back shortly. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM at 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share the audio or video. Not to mention, slam your fist into that rumble button. Don't necessarily break your computer, but definitely slam your fist into the rumble button. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and of course, you can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. So I want to bring in our guests. We have the one and only, I always call him the voice of truth, Mark Sloboda. He's an international relations and security analyst. Mark, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? Jamal Manila, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Fault Lines. Mark, it is always an honor and a pleasure to have you. You're one of those people I can sit here and talk for hours. Pick your brain for yeah, hours. I, I swear. Um, good. So I want to get into the conversation. Be gentle. <laughs> Be gentle. <laughs> I would try. I want to get into the conversation of the meeting between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin yesterday. And I want to know what came out of this. This has to do with the Shanghai Cooperation Agreement, or organization, I should say. What was the result of that meeting um, on the global stage? Okay, so uh, um, first, I, I want to. There was one particular statement that came out of uh, uh, Putin and uh, Xi's meeting uh, during uh, the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit. And there's no question that Russia and China are, are basically the, the joint driving heads of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And that, I mean, they have met each other more than they've met any other world leader uh, for years running. Uh, whenever they're reelected, they, they first visit each other's countries to show the strength of the solidarity. And by all accounts, they have a very strong personal relationship, as well as, you know, the ever-growing strategic, uh, economic, and ties in all other spheres that, uh, that China has termed stronger than an alliance. Um, and they said, coming out of this, um, uh, Putin uh, made the comment that the organization includes countries with different cultural and civilizational traditions, foreign policy guidelines, and models of national development. However, building work on the principles of equality and mutual benefit, benefit respect for each other's sovereignty, and refusal to interfere in internal affairs made it possible to turn this organization into an effective mechanism for multilateral cooperation. I, I just want to highlight something there. It's respect for sovereignty, but also important, they're talking about respect 
respect for difference, right? That they do not feel the need to dictate each other's political and social system to each other. And when they're talking about refusal to interfere in internal affairs, of course, they're not talking about each other interfering in internal affairs. They're talking about a joint position about anyone who would interfere in their eternal affairs, meaning, of course, the, the, the U.S.-led Western uh, global hegemony. Uh, so, I mean, that sets it out there. And it is this respect for difference, right, um, and different uh, social and political traditions coming and working together out of mutual benefit um, that really makes the Shanghai Cooperation Organization the birth, the, the birth of the framework of the multipolar world. That 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 is exactly what it is becoming. On an es uh, economic aspect, it is becoming an a nascent uh, alternative framework to the economic and financial system you know, currently of globalization, which has been totally controlled and now weaponized by the West. And a whole host of countries are seeing the threat of that and realize it could be used against them. So the big thing coming out of this SEO summit is expansion. And whoa, are they expanding? Like, yeah, so isolated. You said that before, <laughs> you know. Uh, um, so, I mean, it is truly becoming Eurasia. I mean, yeah. already the SEO now covers 43% of the world's population and nearly 30% of its trade. That's nobody. So Iran, <laughs> yeah, that's nobody, yeah. So the SEO, officially Iran became a member, right? Uh, they, 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 were, they were granted the package and, and you know, starting the next year, they uh, will be a full member. Um, and... Um, that is to be followed quickly by Belarus and Mongolia. Uh, Belarus has already been in the pipeline, and Xi Jinping uh, just indicated that Mongolia would now be fast-tracked uh, to, to full membership. Then there are other levels of association of membership within the Shanghai Cooperation. Uh, India and Pakistan already joined a, a couple of years ago, as long with the other uh, Central Asian states that have been there from the beginning. But it, it goes beyond that. So uh, the, the second tier of status is dialogue partners. And along with the dialogue partners that are already there, Egypt, U.S. ally, and Qatar – U.S. ally just joined the organization as dialogue partners on Wednesday. Saudi Arabia is a longtime U.S. ally, is scheduled to join to do the same next year to become a dialogue partner. While Bahrain, Kuwait, the UAE, Myanmar and the Maldives um, have all applied to become dialogue partners what, as well. What does this mean to you? I mean, like, I'm, yeah, because this seems like it goes be like, uh, I guess I look at this as being whereas the West is taking the hit. You have this other secondary economic yeah. organization being arranged yeah. around behind yeah, I mean, it. You rattled off I, a whole I, bunch I, of, of, of countries there, Mark. Yeah. Um, just for for the listeners out there, the SEO was founded in 2001. It uh, was its permanent members so far made up of China, India, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Russia, Tajikistan, Pakistan, and Uzbekistan. And then you just rattled off another half dozen yeah. people that are 
considering membership or at least in communique uh, with the SEO. So, it, I mean, it's not nobody. So isolated. <laughs> so isolated. <laughs> so China isolated. Is. Yeah, I, I think the big, I mean, if you take a look at that list, you see all of the U.S.'s uh, Middle East partners, uh, you know, for decades suddenly joining the SCO. And what I see by that is the entire Middle East is saying, huh, they're looking at what the West is doing uh, to Russia uh, economically. They realize how that could be used against them. They see attempts to uh, you know, completely disrupt the global energy markets, which is very important to them. And then demands about capping them, the U.S. dictating the price of oil that other countries can sell for. And what I see is all of these countries saying, yeah, we want options. <laughs> we, we want options. <laughs> uh, so um, that, that's what I see that. I, I, I see that they are, they are putting a foot. And there was just a, an article out in the New York Times this morning, uh, in-depth article, ostracized by the West, Russia finds a partner in Saudi Arabia. And they talk about Russia and Saudi Arabia, right, which used to be, you know, particularly during the Soviet era, bitter enemies and were as recently as during, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, 2014, 2015, during Russia's intervention uh, in, uh, you know, the uh, the proxy war on Syria. Um but that has completely turned around, and Russia and Saudi Arabia now basically operate together as what they call OPEC Plus, where the two biggest oil producers in the world, uh, the two biggest exporters, get together and they say, um, yeah, uh, uh, we're going to decide together, and then everyone else can get in line what to do with oil. And uh, spitting in Joe Biden's face, Saudi Arabia just announced that OPEC will cut production, <laughs> raising energy prices uh, yeah, even further, just after Joe Biden had been demanding of Saudi Arabia uh, that they that they uh, lower prices. Uh, so, um, you know, Saudi Arabia is, you know, it, it is clearly not some type of ideological ally of <laughs> Russia. Right. They're acting in their own economic interests. And increasingly, they are seeing the potential to a threat to their economic interests. And they are basically recognizing that all of this global economic disruption, particularly with the energy and food markets, but having an effect on everything else is due to the West's economic uh, weaponization of their control of the, the global financial and economic system and how dangerous that is. And it's no surprise. Uh, uh, Saudi Arabia has also recently offered to China to, uh, to conduct oil trade in their own currency, in Chinese currency, instead of the U.S. dollar. And um, the, um, Saudi Arabia is buying lots of Russian oil. And you might say, why would Saudi Arabia buy Russian oil? Because they can get Russian oil for a small discount now, refined, already refined, use it for their own domestic purposes, and then sell their own crude oil at a markup to the West. <laughs> 
which is what they're doing. Right, secondary so, markets. There's, yeah. you know, it's it's capitalism. Yeah. Secondary yeah. markets are allowed, it's, right? Hey, I mean, that's why eBay. We, we wanted yes. a global <laughs> capitalist market, right? That's what we all wanted. Well, you got it it's, now. It's, Enjoy. It's like the you eBay created of, this of oil. Yeah, right. <laughs> eBay of oil. Why not? I mean, if you can make money from doing it, right? Like well, they have a need. There's a demand for it. And then they're going to have to pay, what, 20, 30% more than what they were paying uh, for before? Yeah. And if America's willing to buy it, you have a buyer. Why not? Yeah. Another one, uh, Turkey. Turkey also, Erdogan, Turkey also has a a, a second tier status in the SCO and is looking at upgrading it. Um, They were, uh, Erdogan was at the summit and the the West just announced that they are threatening Turkey with sanctions again. This time, for use for accepting the Russian mirror payment system to make it easy to attract or a lot of Russians go to Turkey because it's close uh, for tourism for you know the beaches uh, okay, in Turkey. The beaches are great. I, you know, I'm, I'm not a big beach person, so I'm not <laughs> going to comment. Yeah. I, if I go to Turkey, I'm going there to see the Byzantine architecture. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't want to. I don't want to talk about the beaches in Italia. I, I can't. I'm not a, uh, a, a partial. Uh, uh, but anyway, um, so uh, yeah, I mean, threatening their once again their NATO partner just for doing business with Russia. You know, and and Erdogan is always dealing out the other side. At the same time, uh, you know, he is helping Azerbaijan in their their latest um, diplomatic coercion with Armenia. They were practicing military drills. So, you know, that's a slight against Russia on that side. Again, it's Erdogan being Erdogan, as I, you know, like to say. Well, Mark, speaking of of spitting in America's face, I mean, you said Joe Biden, but effectively America, um, at this SEO event, um, you have India's uh, Prime Minister Narendra Modi saying this, and I'm quoting from RT.com. He says, the COVID-19 pandemic and the crisis in Ukraine have caused disruptions in global supply chains, and the entire world is facing an energy and food crisis of unprecedented proportions. The SEO needs to make efforts to develop reliable and diverse supply chains in our region. And this requires better connectivity among countries. So I would have to imagine that if if you're the U.S., if you're Joe Biden or somebody in his organi- his administration, you hear Narendra Modi saying this, who just a year and a half ago literally rolled out the red carpet for Donald Trump and filled up a soccer stadium you know, everyone there praising Trump. A year and a half later, you have Narendra Modi saying this. How disconcerting is that for Biden's administration? Well, it's certainly not, uh, you know, really conducive to their attempt to lure, you know, the 1.3 billion Indian people into being cannon fodder for a future U.S. war with China. I mean, that 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 it doesn't bode well for that. I mean, yeah, just a few years ago, I mean, the, the hype was the quad and India is joining the U.S., you know, uh, containment of China. Well, actually, uh, China and India are now sitting down and talking and they've agreed to withdraw troops from this ridiculous plateau at the top of the world that, that no one lives on, that they've been arguing and, and having fist fights over for a few years. And, um, it, you you know, it looks like they're starting to sit down and even crazier, Saudi Arabia and Iran are starting to talk. And they're both part. They're both members at different levels in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. 
I mean, this is countries actually sitting down diplomatically working things out all of a sudden. And and the U.S. much prefers this uh, spoke uh, this uh, uh, you know spoken hub type relationship where everyone has relations uh, primarily with the U.S. and they can set countries against each other. This is this is so very anti-U.S. hegemony in practice. <laughs> Mark, I want to get into a little bit about the war. Um, you weren't I wasn't here during the time where you guys were having a conversation about the, um, the offensive. And Kharkov. And I want to get your take on that. There's been a huge number of secondary offensives that are basically gone for naught. Um, I read through some of them earlier today in the monologue. And I want to get your take. There's supposed to be talk about Ukrainian forces moving to the south. What is your take on what's going on up to this point in regards to Ukraine and the offensives they've been launching, trying to keep the momentum for the Kharkov offensive? Okay, so for months, Russia has been grinding through these uh, extensive fortifications and tight urban areas in Donbass, methodically with heavy artillery softening, minimizing casualties on their side. And, and the, the Kiev regime discovered that tossing their, their military into that meat grinder is not a you know, one-on-one direct confrontation is, is a way to lose the conflict. So they are just playing defensive with very, you know, throwing their cannon fodder into the fortifications there. They reserved some of their best troops. And also during the last few months, they drafted the entire country. Right. Everyone between every male between the ages of 16 and 60 is not allowed to leave the country. They raised the conscription age to 70 and they formed massive, you know, um, uh, military units out of, uh, you know, volunteers. And whoever didn't volunteer was forcibly conscripted. You know, uh, so they say they have a million man army now. OK, that's probably a big exaggeration. But, you know, if you include the, the, the police, uh, the National Guard, all the battalions together, they're probably pushing 600,000, uh, which is significant, especially when Russia's own military intervention by the self-imposed legal terms of the special military operation that many Russian people are now screaming against. The size of the Russian intervention force is limited to around 150,000 troops, and it has never gone over that. And that's supplemented by some 40 to 50,000 East Ukrainians from the Donbass who are fighting against the regime. But you see that this is the attacker with a supreme, uh, you know, a very serious numbers disadvantage. Now, Russian battalion tactical groups do have a very big fires advantage, right? Artillery, aviation, rocket systems. So the West sat down because they're now in charge. I mean, they openly admit that they're planning and wargaming the Kiev regime's war for them, right? They're funding it, they're arming it, they're training it, they're planning it, they're providing the intel. The the only thing that the Kiev is doing is the Ukrainians are are killing each other and and they're calling the shots, right? So um, they they came up with a strategy to, to overwhelm the Russian BTGs. They attack with counter offensives in multiple areas either in quick succession or simultaneously across broad fronts, right? With what amounts is to large groups of manpower, diversion reconnaissance groups, mechanized infantry, then followed up by, you know, the, 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 the armored fist that they've been able to cobble together by what Poland, the tanks that Poland has sent. And um, the idea is to 
exhaust Russian fires, or the uh, artillery, rocket, aviation, trying to run around everywhere, putting out fires, playing whack-a-mole, find where they're weakest and, and uh, where the line breaks and push everything in there. And Russia, again, by their self-imposed limit, it's 150,000 troops. They've taken so much Ukrainian territory that they can't hold it all at once at the same time. So they held in Kherson. They prepared their defenses. Uh, they massed uh, their fires. And the Kiev regime made non-existent gains and suffered horrific casualties in the process. Because this strategy is very, very cruel on your cannon fodder, right? It's throwing it into the meat grinder. Right. Uh, Russia take a, took a, then took a look at the other offenses that were brewing. And they saw an offensive in the north against Tarkov. And they also see the upcoming offensive in the southeast and south against from Ugladar to Mariupol and uh, uh, into Zaporozhye. And they had to make a decision. They couldn't hold it all at the same time with just 150,000 troops. So a little just about a week before the Kharkov uh, counteroffensive kicked off, Russia very quietly began withdrawing the vast majority of their troops and gear from, from Kharkov. And they have been moving it instead all south. I believe a big part of the goal of the Kharkov offensive was to tie up Russia's mobile reserves, their armored punch back uh, in Kharkov so that they can push this more important, most likely bigger and decisive battle, this counteroffensive that is shaping right now uh, in the south, near Zaporozhye and from Ugladar to Mariupol, where Kiev has built up a lot of forces and they have now removed the defensive minefields that they placed, clearly indicating that they're about to begin their, the, uh, what I believe is a much bigger and more decisive offensive to come. And it's there that they're both racing troops and that we'll see whether Russia's strategy of withdrawing from Kharkov and abandoning the people there is worth the price in blood uh, that it inflicted, you know, against any anyone who collaborated, quote unquote, with the Russian government there to to the neo-Nazis who are now cleansing the cities and towns. Well, the towns, they're, they're all towns, towns and settlements up there, whether that was worth it you know, this prioritization to hold the South. Meanwhile, in Russia, there's all kinds of talk now about the necessity to change the status of the special military operation to allow more troops, to allow other targets to be hit and so forth. But so far, the Kremlin is resisting. But why have they resisted? I mean, like, I get that there's political consequences for it, but the fact that they couldn't maintain what they had and proceed with yeah. their gains gets across that it doesn't seem to be enough personnel to do the yeah. job. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's a mistake. All right, here is the possible logic that they've arrived to. One is the possibility of domestic political considerations, but even U.S. polling shows support for the intervention is like 80-some percent plus. And uh, actually, there's a huge outcry now for to for to recognize it as a total war uh, being waged on us by NATO and to drop this self-imposed limitations coming from the commentariat, coming from the public directed at the Kremlin. Right. They're, they're criticizing the Kremlin, not, you know, stop the intervention, but go harder. 
the other possibility, which I think is more likely, is that it was from the beginning a signal to the West that uh, the, we have we have to NATO that our intentions are limited. We are all, always available for peace on the terms that we laid out in the beginning that you refused, um, and so doing by limiting, hoping to limit NATO escalation and to ensure that NATO wouldn't directly send their troops into Western Ukraine. I, I believe that is a false, uh, if, if that is the premise, if that is the logic that the Kremlin is, is operating from, I think that that is a mistake. I think it was always a mistake. And I think especially now when NATO has completely exhausted its own military stockpiles, that any threat of that is vastly more reduced uh, than it was before, because Russia has been effectively demilitarized. They already demilitarized Ukraine's first army, right? They're now de demilitarizing NATO, right? All of their military stockpiles, anything that they could spare, digging deep into their own. They, they don't have any artillery. There's all kinds of articles in the Western press about the U.S. scrambling. They don't have any more artillery shells, not only to give Ukraine, but not even enough for themselves anymore. So I don't believe that's a serious threat. And I, I think the Kremlin needs to adjust their policies, realizing that, you know, having beaten one Ukrainian army, they're now fighting NATO just with you know, Ukrainian proxies and that they need to up the game. Mark, now switching gears a little bit, some of the fallout from what these NATO countries are doing uh, there in Europe, obviously they're going to have a pretty cold winter. Um, today in Germany, uh, German officials have announced that they seized control of Russian oil refineries, uh, of local yeah. Rosneft facilities, because they claim service providers there locally are allegedly refusing to work while it is, uh, you know, a Russian-owned company. And so Berlin is taking control of these German subsidiaries of uh, Rosneft called Rosneft Deutschland. Um, they say it's going to be for six months. And I, I mean, I don't know if this is a guise for some sort of hostile takeover or I don't know. But, yeah. but I mean, what does that look like to you? Because that seems kind of weird to me. Yeah, that seems like a declaration of war and that they're stealing and nationalizing our oil refineries. That's what it seems like to me. That's simple, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's simple. That that's that's what everyone is saying here and there are calls of course to retaliate by shutting all energy that is left flowing to to the EU off um and to seize European assets in Russia. Wow. I mean, that's when that news broke this morning, I just thought, wait a minute, this is like some Gordon Gecko stuff, yeah. right? Like we're just taking it. And I, I yeah. don't know how, I mean, they're citing something. They say the legal basis for the order was Article 17 of the Energy Security Act. According to it, a company that operates critical infrastructure in the energy sector can be placed under management if there is a specific risk that without management, the company will not be able to perform its tasks that ensure the functioning of society in the energy sector, as well as if there's a risk to disruption of security supply, according to the German yeah. ministry. We've put sanctions on your company, the country that prevents you from doing work with us. And we need these oil refineries, so we're taking them. But let's, let's uh, and that's not it, because they are in discussion to go further uh, and steal other Russian assets uh, in the country uh, as well. Uh, 
so um, that uh, that is uh, could in very short order be expanded to include other Russian energy assets uh, in Germany in the in the coming days. I mean, they've already frozen Russian assets in the billions of yeah, U.S. Right. dollars. They've already yeah, frozen, meaning stolen. 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 Yeah. Russia will yes. never AKA, see that money again. AKA right? stolen. Yeah, yes. I, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> Just this is nuts. This is wow. nuts. All right. We hear the music. Thank you for that, Mark. Mark, Mark Sloboda, International Relations and Security Analyst. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Sloboda1. Find him on Facebook at facebook.com slash Gramsci. And he is now on YouTube. Great channel. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lids for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. That means you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Right on. Great conversation with Mark. Thievery. He said it is an act of war. Thievery. Yeah. He's like, they basically just stole it. Um, and the response is going to be fascinating. Because like Mark said, he said, here, they're talking about an act of war. He was like, that's simple, huh? He's like, yeah. They basically stole property. Um, and continue, and consider, considering going further. Now, all things being equal, I look, I've look. i looked at this as basically a war between the West and Russia. Meaning NATO forces combined in order for sure. Russia itself. And so for me, is the thievery that shocking? Meaning, is it a shocking thing that at the point where your country positions itself in a war with another country, that you steal the property of that particular country? No, I mean, just look at what the U.S. did a year and a half ago when Biden came to office with Afghanistan. That's right. Nine billion dollars. Those people are literally starving to death. Nine billion is nothing for the U.S. And then to go reapply that money towards 9-11 victims' families. Wait a minute. Why Afghanistan's money? Yeah. Like, they, none of these people that hijacked the planes were Afghans. They, they were, were Saudis. Saudis. They were Saudis. And yet you're stealing the money in order. I mean. Nine billions, like, let's say $900. It's pocket for, change uh, for, for America. the US. Yeah. yeah. Like, why steal? Meanwhile, you have Afghans starving and about to freeze to death. Yes. Like, more than half, more literally more than half of all children under the age of 12 in yes. Afghanistan are facing literal starvation. And the U.S. is not giving Afghanistan. They literally stole, they stole Afghanistan's money. money. Yeah. I mean, the catch for that is kind of what Mark was making a point of saying, well, look, many of the rest of the world is organizing itself against us because they realize they could be held to the same standard. Meaning in the same way they stole yeah. that money from Afghanistan, if I'm not mistaken, stole that money from Venezuela, talking about the Brits, they, yep. or for that matter, stole that money from Russia, where they basically said, we're just going to keep hundreds of billions of dollars of reserves. Well, the UK did that to Venezuela with yes. their, their gold, literally yeah. bars they of just gold. Kept it. They're just bars yeah. of gold in the banks in, in like, the UK. Yeah, we're just going to keep this. We're just going to keep this. Yeah. No, no big deal. I mean, what does the rest of the world think when they see that? And my, kept, my response kept being, dude, you realize when you have a power center like that, other countries are going to organize and try to undermine the fact that you have that level of capability and power. Well, this is why, this is why um, before the market crash in the 1920s and 30s, 
why Americans pulled their money out of the banking system right. and hid it under the mattress. Right. <laughs> this is literally right. why, because yeah. we're seeing this in Lebanon right now, yeah. where, I mean, we just they read this headline. They were robbing the banks to well, get their money back. They're not even really robbing, right? Well, they were I mean, taking their own money. It's their own money. Yeah. But the banks are holding these people's money hostage. Yeah. When it's those people's money. It's their cash. It's their money. So it's the same thing. We're seeing this like this. It's almost like a cabal of criminal enterprise under the guise of being a, a, an official, yeah. quote unquote, official government that you're hanging on to other people, other countries, money. Yes. This and is this theirs. Case is their resources. In I mean, this case, right. Oil refineries. The question is response. Meaning the response on some level, the way that Mark talks about it, they may shut off gas entirely. They might say, okay, fair enough. If you guys are going to steal it, you're not going to get it from us in order to take. Meaning the reprisal for something like this, or the reason that you don't do something like this is because you may actually lose access to something well, that you really Nord legitimately one, need. Nord Stream is 1 off. is already offline. Right. Nord Stream 2 never came online. Right. So the, the Germans have what they have right yes. in stores. So they need to refine what they have yes. because this is an emergency for them. Yes. They are about to freeze. They're it's collecting right. sticks and firewood <laughs> right, ahead right, of right. the winter. Cutting down the temperatures, right? can't take cold Literally. showers. Yeah. So they're like, okay, well, whatever energy resources we already have, we better find a way to refine it right. because we can't rely on the Russians to do it because we're scared they're going to respond to us. Yeah. So let's just take it. But the problem with that is you still need more oil and gas. You need more to come, of course. Yes, you need more to come. But for right now, they say it's a temporary six-month holding. It's a holding organization they created, holding. Yeah. So they're they're just going to hold it for safekeeping for six months, Russia. Don't worry. That's also called We'll give you your stuff back. Theft. So it's like (laughs) when the kid down the street steals your bike, Right. He's not stealing it. He's, He's just borrowing holding. it. He's borrowing it for six months. Yeah. He'll or give like you they, your bike back. Or like Trump said in Syria, he's like, we're protecting the oil. We're yes. protecting the oil. We're protecting like, your oh assets. My God, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're protecting your assets by basically we're, taking them. We're the them. best holders. Right, right. So don't worry about it. They'll we're, be we're safe. They'll be good. We just need the oil just and gas. crazy. But let's go to this. Let's oh. go to headlines in the news. U.S. President Joe Biden's son has asked for the court to cut deadbeat dad Hunter Daddy. Biden. Deadbeat dad. As somebody who had a deadbeat dad myself, I'm aware of deadbeat dads when I see deadbeat dad and I'm looking at a deadbeat dad, Hunter Biden. U.S. President Joe Biden's son has asked the court to cut his child support payments, claiming he has money troubles. Hunter Biden, wheeler and dealer of China, and making all, what, $80,000 a month in Ukraine, knowing nothing about oil and gas on Ukraine. No, but don't forget, he has sugar bro. He is sugar bro. Here's Sugar Bro. I mean, when he's willing and dealing with these prostitutes, I mean, he didn't seem to be out of money then. I mean, I have the video. He's out of money. Yeah, I have the video with him talking to the prostitute, basically arguing with her and saying, look, look, hun, here's the money. Don't ever say I put my hands on you and all this other stuff. Well, what about that money? What about that money? You have money for crack and for working girls, but not for your kid? Hunter Biden, deadbeat dad? Is that what we're saying? Daily Mail reported on Thursday that Hunter Biden, Texas-based attorney Brent Lardington filed a motion with the Independent County Circuit Court in Arkansas on Monday asking for the client's payments to be revised. Langdon claimed that Biden had suffered, quote, a substantial material change, unquote, in his, quote, financial circumstances, including but not limited to his income, unquote. The 52-year-old, 52-year-old, we always talk about him like a child. The 52-year-old has been paying child support to 31-year-old Arkansas resident, Luden Roberts, after fathering her four-year-old daughter, Navy Joan, born in 2018. Biden has never met his daughter. Dead beat dad, Hunter Biden. 
has never met his child. Why haven't you met your child? What is so different about this particular child as opposed to the other grandkids of Joe Biden? Is it potentially because she was a stripper? You don't necessarily like the fact that she was a stripper when you met her. Look, regardless of what she did, regardless of how you two met, you decided to make a kid. This wasn't magic. This wasn't some kind of wizardry that needed to take place. The same penis that you were using to measure those M&Ms is basically the same one that impregnated that woman. That is your kid, apparently. Pay for your kid. Deadbeat dad, Hunter Biden. Let's keep going. Texas Governor Greg Abbott has lambasted the Biden administration for continuing to turn a blind eye to the crisis in the U.S. southern border after failing to do its job. The Republican governor office did not mince words when responding to White House Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre's assertion that the GOP governor were performing, quote, illegal stunt, unquote, when sending migrants to Martha's Vineyard in Washington, D.C. Quote, the White House is full of a bunch of hypocrites led by a hypocrite in chief who has been flying plane loads of migrants across the county or the country and oftentimes under the cover of night, unquote. Greg Abbott Press Secretary Renee Ayers was cited as saying by Fox News Digital. The press secretaries clarified that all migrants transported by Abbott had willingly signed a waiver form available in the form of languages before boarding the buses. Well, here's the thing. I don't necessarily know if it's illegal for Abbott to do that. At the very least, I haven't seen any particular law that Abbott has broken. But at the point where he's dumping them off to march to his vineyards, and you have all of these liberals, like, oh, oh, what are these migrants doing here? Well, or for that matter, dropping them off in Kamala Harris's house, I mean, she is the czar of migrants, or at the very least, the person who's supposed to be doing that particular job. Whatever you want to think about it, there's a level of ballsiness to it that is rather fascinating in regards to the point that Abbott is trying to make. Look, I am not a fan of Texas. If Texas wants to secede from the union, fair enough, I'm perfectly okay with Texas doing so. Well, for that matter, um, some of these other Southern states, but all things but equal, doesn't he have a point? You're leaving those areas left to their own devices in regards to a huge population of influx that many of the other states don't necessarily have to deal with. He's trying to make a point. Whether you like the point or not, he's trying to make a point. It's a fascinating point in the way that he is doing it. Politically savvy. Let's keep going. Speaking to conservative talk show host Hugh Hewitt ahead of the rally near Youngston, Ohio, later this week, Trump was asked if he thinks he will be indicted over the classified documents the FBI sees from Mar-a-Lago Estate in Florida. The former president replied he does not think he will be indicted because he has, quote, done nothing wrong. Whatever. You had those documents. <laughs> Let's just be very clear. Yes, we can point out as saying that the way that they're treating Trump is different than the other let's say, presidents that they may be treated, or for that matter, even different than treated Hillary Clinton. Well, let's be clear. He did have access to those documents when he wasn't supposed to have those documents. Let's keep going. Quote, well, there's no reason they can indict Trump other than if they just sick and deranged, which is always possible because I did absolutely. You've seen the legal papers, absolutely nothing wrong. And there's no reason that they can do that. Unquote. Have to disagree with Trump there. There is a reason that they could do it. Whether they would do it is secondary to whether or not they should. Let's keep going. The Biden administration is setting up closer cooperation with northeastern states to avoid, quote, unanticipated energy disruptions, unquote. The Energy Department announced in its readout of the meeting with Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm and the governor of six states in New England region of the United States. Quote, the purpose of the meeting was to strengthen partnership and increase collaboration on developing solutions to achieve our shared commitment to do everything possible to mitigate and avoid unanticipated energy disruptions, unquote, the readout said on Thursday. The governor's requested a joint meeting with Granholm to discuss the crisis in a letter that was sent to her in July, the readout noted. Let's keep going. 
The recent substantial turmoil in the cryptocurrency market shows that the digital assets risk harming the United States financial stability and national security. White House National Economic Council Director Brian Deese said, quote, we've seen in recent months substantial turmoil in cryptocurrency markets and those events or these events really highlight how without proper oversight, cryptocurrencies risk harming everyday American financial stability and national security, unquote, Deese told reporters. The Biden administration is recommending the U.S. regulators and law enforcement agencies redouble efforts to crack down on illicit cryptocurrency activity in the United States, a senior official told reporters. Gotta be honest, I'm, I'm, I gotta, I'm always shocked that the cryptocurrency thing is able to take off. Well, that's not true. I'm not shocked by it. Let's keep going. U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin, a Democrat from West, uh, what is this? Wisconsin, told reporters on Thursday that the report Respect for Marriage Act which he has sponsored, would not be voted on until after the November 2022 midterm elections, when Democrats hope to have a stronger majority in the upper congressional chamber. Quote, I'm still very confident that the bill will pass, but we'll be taking the bill up later after the election. We'll be putting out a joint statement, unquote, Baldwin said. The bill will enshrine the right of same-gender couples to marry, as well as repeal the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act, which bans same-gender marriages. Democrats rushed to pass the bill after the Supreme Court signal in the Dobbs versus Jackson decision in June that the right of gays, lesbian, and bisexuals to marry could soon be on the chopping block. The decision struck down the federal right to an abortion. Basically, one thing happened and they basically started going after the other. Let's keep going. In international news, the Biden administration has deepened its partnership with Taiwan and is planning to continue to support the Chinese province diplomatically, economically, and militarily amid ongoing tensions with Beijing, State Department spokesman Ned Price said on Thursday. Quote, for our part, the Biden administration, we have deepened our partnership with Taiwan. We'll continue to do so with effective diplomatic, economic, and military support, Price said during the press briefing. The Biden administration anticipates the strong bipartisan support for Taiwan it has seen in Congress across the United States, Price has added. Let's keep going. Finnish President Sali Nesisto has said he would consider further tightening visa restrictions on Russians, of course, although rules governing the issuance of tourist visas to Russians have already been tightened. Lawmakers consider removing a clause that fast-tracked granting the visas to property owners in Finland, Nisto said, at an event hosted by Associated of Political Journalists. Basically, impotent rage. Look for anything. We're going to sanction the buying of suckers for Russians. If Russians want to buy lollipops, then they're going to get sanctioned for doing so. Norwegian oil and gas giant Equinor has sounded the alarm about an unknown drone activity around at least three of the company's platforms in, North, in the North Sea. The observations were reported to the police and Petroleum Safety Authority, yet the company remains rather tight-lipped about the occurrence. Quote, we have observed unidentified drones at several of our stations. The observations have been reported to the Norwegian authorities, unquote, Equinor's press officer, Erskil Erskin, told the Norwegian news outlet, Adri Mayer. Let's keep going. Argentine Vice President Cristina Fernandez de Kitchener. What a name. On Thursday, made the first public statement about the assassination attempt on her and thanked God for staying alive. Quote, I am alive thanks to God, the Blessed Virgin Mary. Pope Francis called me. We spoke on the phone. He told me that the acts of hatred and cruelty are always preceded by words and expressions of hatred. Then aggression grows and grows and outgrows. Unquote. Kirshner stopped her speech, adding that she did not want to talk about the day anymore. 
she said the words at the meeting with priests. She said, God save me. I, I'm all, I'm always enamored by that. God and the Virgin Mary saved my life. Had nothing to do with the security guards rushing her out and everything else. But let's keep going. The Qatari authorities have turned down Israeli requests um, conveyed through FIFA to open a consulate in Doha to help the kingdom of Al-Ari Al-Jayid news porter responded on Thursday citing sources. Wait a minute, I think I did that wrong. Let's try this one more time. The Qatari authorities have turned down an Israeli request conveyed through FIFA to open a consulate in Doha to help Israelis during the FIFA World Cup in the kingdom. The Al Arabi Al Jadid news portal reported on Thursday citing sources, quote, Israel submitted a request through FIFA to open a consulate to assist Israelis in case they need during the cup in Qatar, but Doha has rejected the request, unquote, the source told the newspaper. Jabir R. Hamiri, the foreign editor-in-chief of the Al-Arab newspaper, confirmed the information via, of all things, of course, Twitter. It's amazing how Twitter has become like a news agency in and of itself. Anytime someone makes a comment, it comes on Twitter. This day in history, in 1908, the General Motors Corporation is founded. That is massive. In 1940, FDR signed Selective Training and Services Act, the first peacetime draft. Um, draft. In 1974, U.S. President Gerald Ford announces conditional amnesty for U.S. Vietnam War deserters. In 1982, the massacre of 1,000-plus Palestinian refugees at Chatli at Sabra begins. And in 1997, Apple Computer Inc. names co-founder Steve Jobs interim CEO. And of course, history is made after such. Those are your headlines. You're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. So there's a lot of economic news that is fascinating to me. And we brought on Mark Frost to have a conversation about it. Mark and I were having a conversation yesterday about where he was explaining that there's a lot of liquidity that is basically sloshing around the system that is secondary to what the Fed basically wants. And that that in and of itself is going to create a momentum where inflation is basically going to continue to take place. Meaning regardless of the actions of the Fed, it's almost like global warming, that regardless of what you do on any particular day, there's still 10 years of heat built into the system itself. Well, in the financial sense, we're dealing with the same thing. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas, Chan, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM at 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. Not to mention slam that rumble button. That's where we are appearing live. But also, if you guys want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is. We try to take the calls at either 845 or 945 if we don't get to the 845 calls. But I want to bring in our guests. The one and only Mark Frost. We have a lot of Marks today. Mark Frost <laughs> is an economist, professor, consultant, drummer, Eagle Scout, Marine, capitalist, Jupiterian, and recovering libertarian. Mark, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? 
I'm doing really good. Um, so I want to have a conversation what you and I were talking about yesterday because I was fascinated by the conversation. Sure. And you basically was making the point of saying, you said it in technical terms, but basically that there's a huge amount that regardless of what the Fed does, the Fed is going to come out and say, okay, we're going to crush down on the amount of money that is sloshing around in our system. And we're going to indicate that we're going to continue to go further if necessary in order to try to get a grip on inflation. Your point was, regardless of what the Fed does, that there's a huge amount of private equity that the Fed doesn't necessarily have access to right away, almost like these little bubbles that are in the um, financial sector that is also going to continue to drive prices regardless of what the Fed does at any particular moment. Meaning there's momentum associated with the amount of liquidity that's in the system that the Fed can't necessarily tighten or at the very least tighten immediately. And even if people basically take the nod for the Fed, that money is still there for the foreseeable future. Am I explaining it correctly? And please take it and explain, expand on it. Uh, yes, you are. And I think you did a really good job of just kind of presenting it at a high level. Well, thank you, Mark. Uh, this, is just, yeah, this is just a concept of physics. And in, and in economics, just like physics, we have long waves of data patterns. And so when you start a force in motion, it doesn't stop instantaneously just because you stop feeding it. it. It continues to go on its own momentum until another force counteracts it. It's like throwing pebbles into a in 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 into a pond, and the and the concentric circles start to interfere with the other concentric circles, and this is why we economists use simultaneous equation models because we try to capture and model that very type of thing. It's why you can have a new president come in, and even though the president has made some changes, it takes time. So uh, most. Most data analysts, you know, uh, that uh, do modeling call those intervening variables, and they try to capture those types of things. But all it really is saying is that there is all this momentum already going on, and it takes time to change that momentum. And then after you change it, it takes time to change that. So uh, I think the media has confused the public because they make it sound like inflation is some comparative statics. And it's not. It's a bunch of simultaneous equations. And the problems of inflation at the high level, just forget, forget, uh, forget economists speak, but it's just when you have too much money chasing too few goods and services. And that money doesn't have to come from government because the, the vast majority of money in a fractional reserve banking system is created by the private commercial banks as they uh, loan out their excess reserves. But what the Fed is doing is they're buying up, or excuse me, they're selling treasury bonds at a discount to banks, and that's drawing up the excess reserves of the banks. So the banks can't lend. But all these non-bank lending organizations, which are measured in the trillions, they got uh, money dropped into them by helicopters during the pandemic, and they're awash with capital. So yeah, the Fed is turning knobs and dials. It's almost like the Wizard of Oz, you know, when Toto pulled the uh, <laughs> right. uh, curtain back, and then you see old man J.P. Morgan, you know, pulling the, uh, the uh, levers. Well, that's kind of what's going on right now, because the Fed doesn't have a scalpel. They have a club, and they don't have the ability to turn the knob to 7%. They can target bank reserves, and they can choke out bank liquidity, but there's still all this corporate liquidity. 
with trillions of dollars in it that just uh, got into a, a pocket here. So it's not just that there's a bubble. There's many bubbles within the bubble. And you can't understand the bubble without understanding the many bubbles that comprise the bubble, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think it makes sense. I mean, all things being equal, basically, whatever the Fed does, the Fed still has to contain with a huge amount of money that's in the system that doesn't necessarily go anywhere immediately. How long do you think that's going to last, though? I mean, I would imagine that many of the private investors will look at the Fed and see what they're doing and pull back, or that's not really an issue currently. I don't see any scenario by which the inflationary threat subsides before two years. I don't see how it's possible for what we've just got through talking about. There is a momentum. It's almost like, think about it this way. We released the Kraken. And once you release the Kraken, you know there's going to be some destruction. You know there's going to be some unemployment. You know there's going to be some lost businesses. You know there's going to be some destruction. You just know exactly what. And then when when you think it's you've got what you want, then you go put the Kraken back in his cage, which is really hard in itself, which is an art, not a science. And that's really what is going on with monetary policy. That's why I'm skeptical, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, claiming how they're going to fix inflation. Nobody right now can fix inflation because nobody has the authority and even probably even more important, nobody has the political guts to go do probably what they need to do to get the economy up to snuff because we're not a command and control, literally. It, I mean, probably indirectly, we certainly have gone that way. But basically, we have a lot of private firms that also compete with public uh, monies. And right now, there's so much private equity out there uh, and I knew this was going on. You guys had me on, I think it was, it had to have been right out about two years ago. It was several months after the pandemic. Right. And I was curious as to why they were doing the PPP thing, because my point was corporate America is not capital starved. At that time, corporate America had so much capital in its reserves, just, just in its coffers. Uh, and I'm like, okay, why are we filling them up more? That's going to cause inflation because there's not going to be anything for those companies to do with the money. They're just going to buy back their stock. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. But it's not actually going to get to the people. And I think I, think I was at least mostly right about that. Uh, and it led to inflation. And it's, it, it's kind of like a genie in the bottle. Once you let it out, you can't immediately put it back in. And that genie, I don't see being put back in the bottle for at least 18 months. I mean, I can't see anything improving significantly with respect to the inflation uh, threat this year or even next year. There's just too much money floating around the system. And the Fed, if it's, going, if it's really serious, because right now nobody's taking the Fed serious. They're, they're, they're acting like they're, they're going to do it a tough game, but nobody actually believes they will. But doesn't the contraction in the stock market indicate that the people are taking it seriously on some level? I'm sorry, what? Doesn't the contraction in the stock market? I mean, what, the market dropped like a thousand points the other day? I mean, that's not indicative of the public responding to it, or at the very least, let's say the wealth of the nation responding to what the Fed is doing? No, because I don't think the, the stock market is falling just because of inflation. I think the stock market is falling because so much private corporate capital and they started buying their stocks back, and there was a lot of inflated stock prices. 
There's a lot of stocks right now that are just simply uh, trading uh, that are overvalued, and there needs to there needs to be a, a correction. That's something that I, I find strange that has evolved in most capitalist economies. The thought that it's it, it's wonderful if the stock market goes up, but it's a horrible, hateful thing when it goes down. It has to go down if it's going to be a healthy stock market. You have to have crashes. Joseph Schumpeter called uh, called recessions a cold douche uh, to oh capitalism. <laughs> Needed. <laughs> Douche means shower, by the way. Right, I know. <laughs> I was, was laughing at Manila's reaction. She was like, oh, jeez. I always got to throw a little morsel of, you know, tidbit in here. <laughs> uh, All I could think of is those Mass and Gill commercials yeah. with the mom and the daughter walking on the <laughs> beach right. and asking if you've ever had those not-so-fresh days, mom. Uh, and I, I remember think those that's, commercials. That's where we're at. That's kind of where we're at. Oh, but, Mark, funny. you said there's, you know, there's too much money flowing right now. Well, just t- just today, I mean, just moments ago, um, the AP is reporting that the Biden administration is moving one step closer to developing um, a central bank digital currency known as the digital dollar, saying it would help reinforce the U.S. role as a leader in the world financial system. Um, but there's also, on, on the one hand, the U.S. government criticizes cryptocurrency and says it's not stable and that it can wreak havoc on on a national security, blah, blah, blah. But yet now you have Janet Yellen saying, oh, yes, we're moving one step closer now and we're going to build a, a U.S. digital dollar. I mean, wouldn't that, I mean, I don't know how that doesn't further flood our economy with more dollars just because it's digital. I mean, I don't, I don't get that. Do you have any insight on that? Yes. The only reason that uh, any government bureaucrat wants to have a nationalized digital currency is control. Yeah. That's literally the only reason. There's, there's so many options out there to, for money. Uh, I mean, money has grown as far as a category, but it's all about control because, uh, Having made my career and my fortune in cash banking, that's 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 what I developed. I developed the first cash logistics software that banks use to manage their cash. Because cash in an ATM machine to a bank is money buried under a mattress. It's a non-earning asset. So I developed something that allowed them to, to service their ATM farms using a lot less money and therefore less opportunity costs. So... Uh, I have a lot of insight and expertise, especially with respect to uh, uh, fiat currencies and then digital currencies. And the only reason that I can see why a country would want to do it is control. Because cash, let's just call it what it is. If you want to go buy some drugs, if you want to go buy a prostitute, if you want to go buy something and you don't want your credit card company to know about it, and the brave new world fear is that eventually, if you go to McDonald's, now your health insurance rates are going to go up. Yeah. Right, right. You know, that's the privacy fear that we have. And the government right now has always hated the cash economy. The, the law enforcement arm of government has always hated the cash economy because cash is anonymous. And what makes, uh, what makes something cash, what makes cash special is precisely that it is anonymous. You can use it, and there's not a direct paper trail of who bought what. 
And with the 80,000 new IRS agents and the ever how many billions increase to the IRS, uh, I completely see why the IRS and the Treasury would love to have a digital money. Because if you have to pay for everything you do using a, using a government-issued digital dollar, uh, that is... The, that is the hallmark of government control on microfinancial transactions. Well, I mean, how long before they just add an RFID to the greenback, right? That's not hard for them to do either. Well, I don't know, but I, I know my religious folks take this very, very oh, yes. seriously. Oh, yes. Of the mark of the beast thing and that you're going to have to have a mark on your arm or something or your head or whatever to sell. You hear these stories of people having chips put in their skin, you know, uh, that allows them to use their Tesla without the key, Ugh, no credit cards, that sort of a thing. So, I mean, that's what, as a libertarian sort of thinker, and all libertarianish means is that whatever your values are, liberty and freedom are way up there. Paramount. I mean, that's, yeah. So individual liberty and freedom is a paramount, very primary value, and it only fades when that freedom is being used to harm somebody else's freedom. So most libertarians that aren't anarcho-capitalists believe that, yeah, you need government, you need to stop polluters, you need to regulate certain things that the market won't take. But the reason we have the positions we have on the issues that we uh, hold is because we're worried about the big, giant 1984 police state taking over. And that's probably why people like me have always been more Democratic Party leaning until recently. I have no idea what happened to the Democratic Party. Yeah, they've gone nuts. I'll leave that to the experts in politics. All I can say is I've never seen anything like it in my entire life as I've observed political things. They just changed. Yeah, they flipped. It was something with the Trump thing where they just went insane. Short circuit. Yeah. Caused a short circuit. Yeah, it was like Trump derangement syndrome and the way that they've acted. I mean, trying to—the limiting of speech. I mean, even the IRS thing is is problematic. Um, Lefties in the past didn't act this way. They were far more skeptical of the way the government acted, and now not so much. Well, I mean, if if we stay on the crypto thing a little bit, I mean, we saw— uh, oh, gosh, what country is it in South America? I'm having a brain fart. I know what you're talking about. That started uh, with the currency itself. Was it Venezuela? They, no, no, not Venezuela. Uh, I forget which South American country. It's It'll come Argentina. to me later. Uh, yeah. But they've accepted... Um, they've accepted... Cryptocurrency crypto is the national currency. Yeah, yeah. They, El, El Salvador. Salvador. That's it. Thank you, producer. Leith, yeah, I was having a Don brain fart. Bukele. Yeah. Don so from Lebanon. El Salvador officially made... Uh, crypto official money mm-hmm. across the state. So it's like as good as, you know, a dollar here. A dollar here. Uh, yeah, I think that was dumb. And I think they're, that they're going to regret that. Uh, really? For, yeah, because I, I'm, people think I'm anti-crypto and I'm not. I was doing crypto, I promise, before <laughs> 99% of the people listening here yeah. even knew what it was. So I know crypto very well. When I had my payments company, we were the first payment company to interface Visa MasterCards with crypto. So I know crypto. I'm not against crypto. I'm against idiots acting like you can't lose any money 
and they're motivating grandma to, oh, to, to get into it. $20,000 of savings into a commodity that has no intrinsic value. See, I'm always skeptical of crypto because of the government control issue. I just don't believe that governments are going to allow money to be undermined because it undermines the capability and the power of the governments themselves. Right. I mean, with that then, with what El Salvador has done with Bitcoin, would it then make it, I mean, obviously it's a a risky currency if you want to call it currency because they've made it official, right? It's an official currency to them. Um, Wouldn't it make it, it, it is volatile, obviously and susceptible to a lot of outside forces by El Salvador making that... Now in existence. Say again? It, it's the most volatile asset. Bitcoin right now, this year, is the most volatile asset you can hold. Right. So, I mean, if the U.S. did something like that, I mean, with the Federal Reserve controlling a digital dollar, though, I mean, would that give the U.S. digital dollar any sort of stability? Uh, yeah, because... It, what gives the U.S. I mean, at the end of the day, Bitcoin has no intrinsic value. Think about it. it it's, I mean, in fact, if you don't have any electricity, it doesn't even work. Right, right. So, I mean, it has zero intrinsic value, zero. And if you're an environmentalist, then the hard N plus P math problems that it has to do, you probably worry about all the electrical consumption and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, energy for it. Hey, it's it is Dutch tulips. So. Dutch tulips in the 18th century, you know, you had a bubble, and they went nuts. Well, the U.S. dollar doesn't have any intrinsic value either since August 1st of 1972 when Nixon took us off the international gold yeah. standard. Right. Right. So, but what the dollar has is the police power to tax investors and holders, foreigners who invest and hold U.S. dollars. They do so because they know that future generations of Americans will be taxed forcibly and and productivity will be extracted from them to pay the interest on those bonds. That's what gives the United States such a great credit rating is everybody knows we love to tax ourselves. <laughs> like the Lannisters. You know, Lannisters always pays the debts, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mark, let's get into the consumer confidence thing for a moment. Um, inflation, yeah, infl- inflation, inflation in August was nearly 9%. Um, and then they come out with numbers saying the consumer confidence rises 0.3%. And because we're spending more, right? We're, we're spending more to pay more. It's not so much that people are basically buying more. It's more so that people are we're paying, paying more, more yeah. for the things that they're buying. I mean, explain the consumer price, consumer confidence for one, that number, but also explain how inflation affects I guess what gives a false impression of that number. And that's, of course, if I'm explaining correctly, definitely correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, Yeah. uh, What inflation causes, inflation can cause something called money illusion. Let's say you just have a little, keep it simple. You have a little sandwich shop on the street. You have a little food cart. And you're making more money in terms of, because your prices have never been higher. So you're making your revenues are high, but so are your costs. So although you have record revenues, your costs are rising and rising and rising. And so even with record revenues, you have record low profits. But you don't recognize that they're record low profits for a few months until you start running out of cash flow, until your cash flow gets tight. And right now... Uh, you know, I, I'll have to bring up what I talk about, what I love to talk about on a political economy thing all the time. We have 
whether you hated Trump or loved Trump, during his administration, the lowest of the working poor, the worst, the, the lowest of the problematic segments of, of uh, minority workers, they did better than they've ever done. Now, whether that was Trump's policies, whether it was the momentum of the Obama policies, doesn't matter. The point is, they were doing really well on net because, because real inflation was tiny, real wage growth was real, and they were doing better. The last five years or so, uh, certainly the last two years, three years, We've developed two Americas. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, it's not even a bell curve anymore. You either need to look at it as two Americas and analyze it separately, or you have to look at it from a bimodal perspective and say, okay, we don't have this sweet little bell curve anymore. We're, you know, we have a few absolute just people who fell through the crack and crashed hard, and then we have some you know, people who have meteoric success. And then we have normal people kind of mostly in the middle. We don't have that anymore. We have people that just are dripping with money. They have so much money, they don't know what to do with it. And then we have people that are wondering how they're going to either buy gas or buy baby formula. And That's, in my view, from a political economy perspective, that's the number one threat this nation faces. You cannot have a capitalist economy that is sustainable with that type of outcome if it's not changed soon. The people will eventually. What makes the United States work? I personally literally don't believe people are born equal. Some people are born really good looking. Some people are born ugly. Some people are born dumb. Some people are born brilliant. But everybody kind of feels like they could be the next Elon Musk. <laughs> what makes America different than any other country I ever visit. Now, whether it's true or not, doesn't matter. We believe it. And as long as we believe that, Things go pretty well. But if we, if we wake up one day and red pill out and say, you know what? The entire game is stacked against us. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And it looked like that might have changed for a brief time, but that was just kind of a statistical anomaly. And there's, there's nothing for anybody in this country unless you have enough money that you can actually prosper in hard times like inflation uh, high unemployment, things like that. And that's the problem that this country has. And until we fix it, we're either going to have a totalitarian fascist type uh, country, or it's going to implode into some form of anarchy where it fragments and there's civil war. And that worries me a lot. Yeah, the, the expansion, as you mentioned, of the IRS under Joe Biden because they're, they're, this expansion, let's face it, they're not going after these big corporate tycoons. The 80,000 new agents are going to go after middle class and working class people that are low-hanging fruit, low-hanging targets for the U.S. government. And, you know, meanwhile, Joe Biden used to stump on, oh, working class, oh, unions, this, that, and the other thing. Going after those unions and people, yeah. Now, now he's hiring 80,000 new IRS agents to go after that very working class. And then he's going to go around and tout this great economy and, oh, we've roared back after COVID. Look at consumer confidence. 
Meanwhile, his polls only rose like 1%. So now he's almost at 40. So I guess good for him. But the rest of us, it seems like the Biden administration is super out of touch with what's really, really going on on the ground. The BLS data, you know how many people have given up on looking for jobs in the first place. So that, you know, saying, oh, the the people on unemployment, that number has shrunk. So therefore, that is proof that people are working. No, it's not. Because the BLS data only counts people who are still actively looking. Right. And what you find is that disposable income has been dropping precipitously. And then, uh, and personal indebtedness has been increasing. So what's going on is people checked out of the labor market during the pandemic. Some of them decided they liked it. Some people have retooled their lives, but a lot of people, and I mean a lot of people, are living off their credit cards right now. And guess what? In three years, we're gonna, it's going to be all over the news. There's going to be a credit card crisis, and we're going to want people to have forgiveness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, it seems like in this country, we, we patch holes in ships. Rather than just say, you know what, this panel of this ship needs to be replaced, we just keep fixing the holes that pop up in it. And, you know, eventually it's like, a, you know, it's like whack the mole. You know, you whack this, you know, yes. you, you uh, seal this hole up and then, then the increased pressure causes another hole to open up. And uh, the country has to do something different than this. And this is what freaks me out about the Democrats. The, the tax plans, the legislation they're proposing isn't traditional. Let's, let's tax productive people and let's help the, the less productive people. Uh, become highly productive. That hasn't been their thing. It's almost like let's help the people that are already doing pretty well. Uh, and it's uh, I'll I just don't understand how a political party changes overnight that much. But, I mean, but see, I guess the question is, did they change at all? I mean, like when Sanders ran, love him or hate him, I love the guy, but love him or hate him, all things been equal. What he's been talking about is basically what Democrats used to talk about in general. Meaning Sanders wasn't necessarily talking about anything overly extreme, even though he was cast that way. It was basically what Democrats say they cared about, health care, education, expansion of Social Security, et cetera. And you got the clear message that they didn't necessarily believe those things when they basically took all the powers in the world at their disposal and dropped it on Sanders. I guess my thing is, is it really a changeover or are these guys just being who these guys are? And putting in a language like Bill Clinton used to have that feel your pain language, despite the fact that Bill Clinton got rid of Glass-Steagall, got rid of welfare, got rid of all these things that were supposed to be Democratic priorities. Is it just that? I argue Bill Clinton was the last conservative president we had. Last conservative? <laughs> I, I mean, I've always heard Nixon being the last Democratic president or something like that because, you know, the, um, this, some of the stuff he did. Why do you think that he was the last conservative? Yeah. Uh, Nixon did price and wage control. Exactly. He wanted to have a reverse income tax. Executive order. I mean, just like, you know, fascism 101, just executive order. You can't raise your prices. And people were like, and people did it anyway. And so it was an unenforceable thing. The only thing that it really worked on was gas. And then all that did was make gas more. That just increased the shortage of gas and drove the price of gas up even higher. But why do you think Bill Clinton was the last conservative president? Why you said in those terms? Because he actually did what conservatives say is the most important thing to them. If you ask me what's the most important thing this country should do, we need to learn how to, to balance 
our desires with our resources. And so, and what I mean by that is we need to pay our bills. The perpetual deficit spending that has become the United States since 1913, since the 16th Amendment and the Federal and the National Banking Act was passed, that is, since the Fed and the uh, 16th Amendment, which allowed the federal government to tax individuals and not reapportion it to the states. In other words, they can tax me and give it to you. Uh, that power, uh, that's what changed with that amendment. It allowed the government to tax and then do whatever it wanted with the money. And those two combinations uh, created a country that started using its credit card. We, we were very successful in World War II. That made that credit card exceptionally valuable because after World War II, to be blunt, if you wanted to buy a washing machine, chances are you had to buy an American one because everybody else's factories were bombed out. Right. You were kind of the last man standing in World War II. Uh, it's something that's not really taught in schools, but you know we generally think you know America entered the war and John Wayne comes over the hill and slays <laughs> It was actually the Russians that beat the Nazis. If you yes. go and study the actual tactics of war that were used, uh, I mean, Germany had maybe a total of 150 fieldable divisions. Two of them were in Africa fighting the British Empire. Uh, 30 were guarding the Atlantic Wall. The rest were in Russia. Action was in Russia. The war happened in Russia. The war would have been lost or one in, in Russia. And at the end of the day, the Germans made great, 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 great initial strides, but they couldn't hold it. And that's always been the secret weapon of Russia if you study just their history of war. It's tyranny of land. Yeah. Yes, because you can take, because what people don't understand about war is that it's all about logistics. And that's probably why I'm interested in it, because that's what I do is logistics because you can't, it doesn't do any good. You can have the best tanks and, and a lot of them, but if you can't get gasoline to them. Which was their issue? They're worthless. Yeah, they ran out of gas. I mean, uh, they were walking most of those distances, which is astonishing when you think about it. I mean, you know, the train would stop and these guys would get off and walk for, you know, hundreds of miles. Um, Mark, always appreciate these conversations, man. Thank you very much. The voice you guys were listening to having me on. Uh, always, man. Mark Frost, he's an economist, professor, consultant, drummer, Eagle Scout, Marine, capitalist, Jupiterian, and recovering libertarian. You can follow Mark on Twitter, at FrostyCash. Um, we have callers, so let's do this. Let's go immediately to our callers. We have Tarif, New Orleans. What's going on, my man? Hey, How are you doing, Tarif? Thank y'all for uh, taking my call. First, I'd like to say free lunch. Um, I have a comment. Um, my folks brought up something about the mark of the beast, about people getting chipped. And I had a, I had a. Um, Wait, people getting what? Say chipped. say that again one more time, Tarif. Yeah, like people getting chipped, you know. Oh, microchipped. Okay, yeah, yeah. Microchip, you know. And I was thinking about supposedly. Just think about what I was telling y'all about MK Ultra, how people experiment on with their brain. Just imagine if they had a um, technology to shrink a microchip and put it in a person's head, uh, where does that person go to? Who does that com person complain to and get legal help? Nobody. Well, that's, that's what Elon Musk is working on now. Yeah. They're testing it in monkey brains right now, like live monkeys. 
Yeah, but I understand that. But just suppose they have uh, a secret group, government funded. Answers nobody, Therese. Experiment. Nobody's going to accept there's, what they're saying. Yeah, there's yeah. no guardrails right now because, I mean, first of all, the U.S. Congress doesn't even have guardrails around social media companies at mm-hmm. this point, much less brain chips or or personal, like human implant chips. Yeah. There are no guardrails or laws around that, so there's no protection for it, and there's no consequence for it. By the way, even facial recognition. I mean, like, that's being done purely for profit. We're just not there yet. They have no laws around any of that. So It takes laws, you know, know, for a while to get to that stuff. So if anybody that wants to get those chips, those it's very experimental. You have nobody. You're in the Wild West. You're on your own. So good luck to you, buddy. Yeah, and I got to be honest. I don't know who would get that. Like, it's one thing if you trust it. I mean, but it's one thing if you trust it. I think it's nuts, but— I think it's insanity to do something like that. But I think the way it's going to end up, it's going to start off with a medical issue. It's going to say, hey, we're going to help you um, see better. We're going to help you here. Help you move your bum left arm. Yeah. And then after a while, it's going to be like, oh, by the way, we have additional capacity that can do X or Y. And then eventually you're going to have people getting jobs where those jobs are going to require those people to have this kind of extra. I could be wrong, but that is terrifying to me. No, I'm not into that. That is terrifying to me. Tarif, thanks, my man. But, yeah, there's nobody to go to for that, and nobody's going to accept the premise. Um, Mark, New York. What's going on, Mark? You're going to have a Mark day, so let me just— Yes, it's all Mark, Mark, Mark. What's going on, my man? Doing all right? Well, I'm doing well. Good to hear your voice, Jamal. Thank you. Welcome back, and hi, Miss Chan. Hello. I was— uh, it's been a minute, but uh, I'll say this. First of all, we're already microchips. Come on. You're carrying on a phone, and you can't remember even your friend's number, okay? You refer to it for so much, you're already chipped. That chip is because of the corporate expansion and the no controls on personal data in America. Europe has at least got some laws. We have none. Yeah. We're already chipped. We carry this phone, and it has our location, our data, mining us. Data, that's the extension of your brain. Unfortunately, because we're so dependent upon it. Good point, Mark. The state has now utilized that you are chipped. And by the way, location, where you go somewhere. I mean, I've even seen interrogations where they said you left your phone because we couldn't track your location. Meaning They they can triangulate where you are because of cell phone towers, which is precisely why Governor Jesse Ventura does not carry a cell phone because he calls it a government tracking device. Yeah. And I don't know how many times he's told me that. But, but by the way, it is, though. When cops, I've seen cops in interrogations tell somebody, you didn't take your phone for the specific reason of not wanting to be tracked. Think about that. Like the very fact of you not carrying your phone becomes evidence against you for something else. It's just fascinating. Mark, please continue. So far, uh, and last point I wanted to mention is that Mark was doing so, Mark Ross was doing so well until he got to the point calling Bill Clinton's son the last conservative. Well, wait a minute. Is he wrong on that, though? Think he about it. Bill Clinton point. was able to get all of these conservative priorities. He was able to get NAFTA. He was able to get the elimination of welfare. He was able to get Glass-Eagle, get um, rid of Glass-Eagle. All of these things were conservative priorities. And supposedly balanced the budget. Yeah. Balance the budget. He shut down all these military bases and everything else. I mean, doesn't he have a point of saying that Bill Clinton basically got Republican policy done over the finish line? Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton shifted to a, to the right of, of standards which the Republican Party had held, but he unleashed the neoliberal model, right? Deindustrial and continued deindustrialization of America's uh, base. With the support of the oligarchs, the American oligarchs who wanted to move factory manufacturing overseas. So how's Mark wrong? <laughs> that sounds like the first, the main, the last conservative president. 
Yeah, no, but actually, we're using contemporary terms, but in terms of economics, and I'm saying political economics is defined in contemporary uh, poli-sci, we're talking about the concept of what neoliberal means. Free markets will dominate. Right. What we're going to do is expand that. So I'm not suggesting, but to call Bill Clinton the last conservative, I guess he's spinning. I mean, I think Mark is running <laughs> on it. Kind of, he, he, he means it in, in general. I get it. Yeah. It's somewhat this not quite getting at what conservatism has been um, in that it's the dominant force of conserving what we have. Bill Clinton unleashed the credit card, and ultimately America has been on the credit card since right. 1980. And I think Frost and I have a similar relationship in terms of banking experience. And I don't know what his has been, but we can talk ops. So in that regard, America has been spending on credit while wages were struck. Was stuck, and then what they did, and they're going to do it now, is crush the labor market in order to try and bring manufacturing back. What limited manufacturing we will produce and to inspire in the industry is bring it back. But what we're also going to bring it back into America. Sure, we're, we're, we can't to challenge or uh, the the prowess of uh, China. However, going on also in short. What is also going on is that's why they've got to increase the taxation base and go into a big Mark, corner. we have to leave it right there because we have another caller behind you, but appreciate these, I mean, excellent points, excellent as points. always, as you always bring up. Louise, Virginia, what's going on, Louise? Good morning. The next time you have Mark Svoboda on, could you ask him what the heck he thinks the United States is up to? Because it sure looks as though the U.S. government is up to two things. Bleeding Russia dry economically and, and every other way, and leading up to uh, having the excuse, oh, the war is getting out of hand, we have to use uh, some nuclear weapons. Could you ask Mark Sabota those two things? I'll, I'll add some that, Louise, but that's extremely escalatory. I mean, like, that's extreme. I, I, why do you think that the that U.S. T- would use nukes? Yeah, why do you think that? Okay, she's we gone. Oh, she just wanted to that tell just us. seems very extreme to me. I don't think the U.S. would quite go there. I don't think they would go there. And Mark even was the, making this. The argue. new mode of war is is bleeding dry. Yeah, it's that part. It's we're going to use proxy forces in order to drain, you know, economic and for that matter, military right. means. Nuclear weapons seems very extreme. Yeah, I don't think. All of a sudden. I don't think Russia or the U.S. want to go there. No, Russia doesn't have a first strike policy in regards to nuclear no. weapons and I have a hard time believing that the United States is going to I, use yeah, Ukraine. They haven't even that. invaded Ukraine, meaning they haven't even taken like Western Ukraine or something like that that many people were talking about. I don't about, think that's even there. Yeah, we're not, so. nowhere near there. Yeah. But Louise, thank you for the comment. <laughs> you guys <laughs> listen to the fault lines. Thomas, Chan, back in a moment for the last hour. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I'm your ever-vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And somewhere in the center, the vixen of Veritas, the thriller in Manila, Chan. (laughs) That means you're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. That Louise, huh? Oh, man. Nuclear <laughs> weapons is extreme. I, she she asked the question, was like, just pose this to Mark yeah. and bounce. 
It's like, I would have loved to ask her. Like, yeah, where like, did you Why do you that? think that? Like, Tariq always stays on the line. So it's like, Tariq, where are you getting that word from? Yeah. He'll tell you, right? He'll say, I saw this, I saw this. And sometimes you're like, I didn't think that was likely, but okay, the but news article is there, right? Okay. Um, like the Wagner group, the, where it was like, he was like, they were talking about a prison. I was like, how? Oh, it's a private organization. Well, the story tends to be true, apparently. But like, Louise just dropped the mic. Yeah, just, hey. Uh, looks like the U.S. is trying to come up with a reason to drop nuclear weapons. Now, the first part was on point, right? They're trying to bleed the Russians dry. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah, to re- oh, yeah, 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 Louise, you're yeah. right about that. And now they're trying to come up with a re- pretext of nuclear weapons. What? And then, <laughs> like, what? Like, Louise, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Who did you get that from? Out. Gone. Is that my point? I'm second. gone. But, I'm, all right. I'm sitting here laughing at the Hunter Biden thing. I'm sorry. I can't help it. He's uh, just, every, every time you turn around... Something. He's like something doing something scummy. Yeah, deadbeat dad Hunter Biden. He's so scummy, and I don't I don't normally say stuff like that about people I don't personally know. Right. But it seems like every time you hear a story about Hunter Biden, it is something super scumbaggy. It seems the best thing that he did was his ability to measure M and M's on his penis. So that, that seems to be the best attribute like, that he had at his disposal. To, to hear <laughs> that that he hasn't even met his baby. That's horrible. And you have like, to ask why. Like, why, why didn't you, you meet this kid? Like, why? Nobody forced you to have a baby. Well, he denied that baby, number one. He tried that, to. that ain't yes. mine. Yeah, that, that ain't mine. mine. That, that ain't well, mine. Court because, found something different. Because that at that time, he was messing around with his sister-in-law slash his de- his That's dead right. brother's wife. Right. So he cheated on the dead brother's wife on on Bo's wife. With the prostitute. With the stripper. With the stripper. Got her pregnant. In Alabama. Got her pregnant. And now is first denied the baby. Now won't even see the baby, and now won't even pay child Don't support. Don't want to pay child support. Oh, I'm out of like, money. The eighty thousand I was getting every month in Ukraine just, wow. is from the corrupt company Burisma. I'm not, I don't have that money anymore. Just, wow. I mean, what about the wheeling and dealing when they have him on jets with his dad, hugging his dad, coming from China, making these deals or making these deals in the Ukraine? I don't know. Where's maybe, the cash, in bro? In some, some instances, I'm like in this case, like maybe it's better this little girl has never met her daddy. I am because if, oh, if Hunter am, Biden is your daddy. I am not just, of that mind. I, look, uh, I, I was raised with a dad that was a habitual liar and wasn't there the overwhelming majority of the time. And regardless of that point, that was always a point of contention because you know it's like when you're a young kid, you want to meet your dad regardless of the situation because you consider it. Your I dad. usually would advocate that, but it's like, oh, when your dad is this scummy, it looks bad, when right? When your dad is like doing blow off of prostitutes, but. In wherever in Eastern Europe, it's an interesting life. It's just like, oh, I mean, man. and then like you, I noticed. I mean, I don't know if everybody else noticed, but during the Biden inaugural, yeah, I mean that baby was not present. Oh, he but had the all, other grandbabies were all there. All the other grandbabies were there. What about that baby? I know. Why did you want sad. that baby? I mean, look, regardless of nobody forced you to have sex with the stripper and to get pregnant. And again, this isn't magic. This isn't some, you know, witch doctor coming together, creating a potion. It's the mechanics of having a kid are pretty straightforward. It's just being a responsible person and not doing that. Yeah. And then after you have a kid, oh, I don't have any money to pay child support. As if somehow she hoodwinked you into having a baby. Again, this is not a situation like, um, I can, what is the name of the, the, the guy? I can't, was it Drake or something? Where he put hot sauce in a condom in order to prevent himself from Ew. getting pregnant? Do you remember oh, the story? After, yes, like after he hooked up with someone. Yeah, and he, he put hot sauce in a condom. He said he carries hot sauce around to make sure he doesn't get pregnant. This wasn't that. Right, so that way they can't take the sperm right. and inseminate or yeah. whatever. Yeah. This wasn't her doing that. You ended like this, up getting somebody pregnant. Happened. It happened, right. and, and you should own up. You have responsibilities. 
cover your I mean, responsibilities. Granted, I have a lot of gripes about like the the child support laws yes. across this country. I have I did a whole thirty minute special oh, on yeah. it. Uh, called Forgotten Fathers, where I did a deep dive into the Gerald Ford administration mm-hmm. and all this stuff and how um, the government is behind all of this and, and it's basically a debtor's prison yeah. for, for, for They're trying some, to force people to pay for some things. that you call right. deadbeat dads. But Hunter Biden is should not and is not. He is financially capable yes. of being not being a deadbeat dad. Yes. He is a wealthy man. He's that living in a he hobble. He's a wealthy man. He's that living on the streets. He can afford Come his on. blow. He can afford his prostitutes. Right. He can afford all of the stuff. Pay your kid, dude. In his instance, he is straight up a deadbeat dad. And what about his dad? His dad. He's like, Joe Biden is literally the president of the United States. He's like, I'm but poor. Granted, but granted, grandpa is not legally or financially responsible for the child. No, he's not. Hunter is responsible. And, yes, he is. But we all know, we all know Hunter is not poor. I don't believe he's for selling a his moment. crap art. Yeah. He's selling his crap art for <laughs> A million dollars. We don't know who buying, who's basically buying for it because it's a right. black box. Exactly. That's yeah. bogus. Pay for your kid, dude. This is yeah. Just Pay so for your in child. that instance, it's like, dude. Ugh. We're gonna just, have Tyler Nixon, who knows Hunter from early on. Knew him in the young days. Yes, he did. Maybe when growing up in Delaware, when Hunter wasn't this gross. Yeah. Maybe he was. I don't know. But you know, it, somewhere along the line, he became a gross person. Pay for your kid, and dude. I just. Ugh. Ugh, that yeah, we'll be talking with uh, Tyler Nixon. That kid about did nothing that. wrong. Because it's kind of fun Friday. Yes. And we get to we get to trash some people yes. sometimes that deserve it. <laughs> right. Deservedly. Right. right. All right. Never trashed a man that didn't deserve it. Some more domestic news apart from Hunter. Let's talk about Daddy Joe Biden. Uh, well, actually, we're going to stay with his son first uh, because <laughs> the actual story is it goes like this: is that that Hunter Biden has asked a court to cut his child support payments claiming that he's having money trouble. According to the Daily Mail and Hunter Biden's Texas attorney, Brent Langdon, they filed a a motion in court with the Independence County Circuit Court in Arkansas on Monday asking for his client's payments to be revised. Attorney Langdon claimed that Hunter Biden had suffered a, quote, substantial material change in his financial circumstances, including but not limited to his income. Now, Hunter Biden, 52 years old, has has been paying child support to 31-year-old Arkansas resident London Roberts after fathering her four-year-old daughter, who they call Navy Joan, born in 2018. Biden has never met his daughter. Then Texas Governor Greg Abbott blasting the Biden administration for continuing to turn a blind eye to the crisis at the southern border and failing to do their job, he says. The Republican governor's office did not mince words when responding to White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre's assertion that GOP governors were performing illegal stunts while sending migrants to Martha's Vineyard and Washington, D.C. Now, Greg Abbott's press secretary, Renee Ezzi, talking to Fox Digital, said, The White House is full of a bunch of hypocrites led by the hypocrite-in-chief who has been flying plane loads of migrants across the country and oftentimes under the cover of night. Now, Abbott's press secretary clarified that all the migrants transported by Governor Abbott had willingly signed a waiver form available in a number of languages before boarding those buses. So it would appear that these migrants wished to be transported elsewhere outside of Texas. 
So those details, though, not completely clear as of this moment. But according to her, this is uh, all done legally. These people signed off on it. Then talking to conservative talk show host Hugh Hewitt ahead of a rally near Youngstown, Ohio, scheduled for later this week. Donald Trump was asked if he thinks he will be indicted over the classified documents that the FBI seized from Mar-a-Lago. Now, the former president replied that he does not think he will be indicted because he has done nothing wrong, he says. Quote, well, there's no reason that they can, other than if they're just sick and deranged, which is always possible because I did absolutely, you've seen the, the legal papers, absolutely nothing wrong. And there's no reason they can do that. Uh, doesn't mean they won't try. And the Biden administration is setting up closer cooperation with northeastern states to avoid unanticipated energy disruptions, according to the U.S. Energy Department announcing in a statement from a meeting between Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm and governors of six New England states. Quote, the purpose of the meeting was to strengthen partnerships and increase collaboration on developing solutions to achieve our shared commitment to do everything possible to mitigate and avoid unanticipated energy disruptions. The governors requested that joint meeting with Granholm to discuss the crisis in a letter that they originally sent to her back in July. Then the recent substantial turmoil in the cryptocurrency markets shows that digital asset risk digital assets, rather, risk harming the U.S. financial stability and national security, says the White House National Economic Council Director, Brian Deese. He said, We've seen in recent months substantial turmoil in cryptocurrency markets, and these events really highlight how, without proper oversight, cryptocurrencies risk harming everyday Americans' financial stability and our national security. Now, the Biden administration is recommending that U.S. regulators and law enforcement agencies redouble efforts to crack down on illicit cryptocurrency activity here in the U.S. And U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin, Democrat out of Wisconsin, told, told reporters on Thursday that the Respect for Marriage Act which she has sponsored, would not be voted on until the no, after the November 2022 midterms when Democrats hope to have a stronger majority in the upper congressional chamber. She says, I'm still very confident that the bill will pass, but we will be taking the bill up later after the election. We will be putting out a joint statement. Now, that bill would enshrine the rights of same-gender couples to marry, as well as repeal, officially repeal, the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA, which banned same-gender marriages. Democrats rushed to pass that bill after SCOTUS signaled in the Dobbs v. Jackson decision back in June uh, that the rights of gays, lesbians, and bisexuals to marry could soon perhaps be on the chopping block. That decision... Of course, the Dobbs decision is what struck down the federal right to abortion. And the Biden administration has deepened partnerships with Taiwan and planning to continue supporting the Chinese province, they say diplomatically, economically and militarily amid ongoing tensions with Beijing. That coming from the State Department spokesman Ned Price. He says, for our part, the Biden administration 
We have deepened our partnerships with Taiwan. We'll continue to do so with effective diplomatic, economic, and military support. And that the Biden administration appreciates the strong bipartisan support for Taiwan it has seen in Congress and across the United States. And the Finnish president, Sauli Ninisto, has said he would consider further tightening visa restrictions on Russians, although rules governing the issuance of tourist visas to Russians have already been tightened, lawmakers should consider removing a clause that fast-tracks the visa process for Russians who own property in Finland. Nanisto said this at an event hosted by the Association of Political Journalists. And Norwegian oil and gas giant Equinor has sounded the alarm about unknown drone activity around at least three of the company's platforms across the North Sea. The observations were reported to the police and the Petroleum Safety Authority, yet the company remains kind of tight-lipped about the whole event. They said, We have observed unidentified drones at several of our installations. The observations have been reported to the Norwegian authorities. That's coming from Equinor's press officer, Eskil Eriksson, talking to Norwegian news outlet Aldri Mayer. And Argentine Vice President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner on Thursday made the first public statement about the attempt against her life recently. She said, I am alive thanks to God and the Blessed Virgin Mary. Pope Francis called me. We spoke on the phone. He told me that acts of hatred and cruelty are always preceded by words and expressions of hatred. Then aggression grows and grows and outgrows. But she stopped midway through adding that she no longer wanted to talk about that day anymore, probably uh, still a bit fresh and painful for her, I'd imagine. Now, she said these words at a meeting uh, that she had with priests. And Qatari authorities have turned down an Israeli request convened, or conveyed rather, through FIFA to open a consulate in Doha. Quote, Israel had submitted a request through FIFA to open a consulate to assist Israelis in case of need during the World Cup in Qatar, but Doha has rejected that request. The source talking to a newspaper there uh, called Al-Arabi Al-Jadid News, Jabra Al-Hirimi, the former editor-in-chief of the Al-Arab newspaper, confirmed this information on Twitter. Then in this day in history, back in 1908, the General Motors Corporation, GM, is founded. In 1940, President FDR signs the Selective Training and Service Act. That would be the first peacetime draft. In 1974, President Gerald Ford announces conditional amnesty for U.S. Vietnam War deserters. In 1982, the massacre of more than a thousand Palestinian refugees at Chatila and Sabra begins. And this day back in 1997, Apple Computer Inc. names co-founder Steve Jobs interim CEO, that after the board ousted him and then begged him to come back. And now we have uh, the iPhone. All right, that's going to do it for your headlines this Friday, September 16th. You are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. All right, in just a minute, we will be talking more uh, about 
Hunter Biden and probably the Biden family in general with our friend Tyler Nixon. Um, as you know, Tyler Nixon is Roger Stone's attorney. He also happened to had had gone to high school with Hunter Biden himself. Uh, so we'll kind of take a peek into that world with our buddy Tyler Nixon. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Tyler after this break. You're listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Chan. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Manila Chan, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM at 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Manila and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. Or for that matter, you can always hit us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is. Hit that rumble button and we'll try to get to you at 945. But we're going to bring in our guests. We have the one and only Tyler Nixon. He's an Army infantry veteran, counselor at law, constitutionalist, advocate, writer, technologist, critical historian, extremist, and defensive liberty. And of course, Roger Stone's lawyer. Tyler, what's going on, my man? How are you doing this morning? Good morning. It's great to be with you. It's great again. to have you. Oh. And it's my birthday today. Oh, so happy I'm, birthday. I'm glad to kick Oh, thank you. Happy thank birthday. you. Perfect. Good to be, uh, it's a good, good to be with you on, on this day. Oh, man. Happy it's, birthday. It's, it's, it's still a, bright it's and early in Colorado, right? That's right. Uh, it is. It is. But it's nice to get an early start. Get an early start on that birthday. Start, hey, start the celebrating. Before, before we forget, <laughs> or before I forget, rather, your, your bio states you're an Army infantry veteran. I'm curious. It's, it's interesting that you started out as infantry. You didn't go in as an officer. No, I didn't. Actually, I was in uh, I was in the Georgetown ROTC and did a year, my freshman year, and I just felt academically burned out. And I was like, you know what? I, I wanted wanted to be enlisted before I was uh, commissioned as an officer. I felt like I didn't. I, I wanted the credibility of having been the lowest position uh, before I would become an officer and be giving orders to enlisted men, especially you know NCOs. So um, I just like said, you know what? I, I also, you know, my family faced uh, I was a single mom situation, so I had to come up with tuition um, and I had a scholarship for, with the ROTC, but that they said they would delay it. And I would also get the GI Bill if I went in. So I did a three year enlistment and as luck would have it in Germany, uh, where I was stationed, ultimately, uh, they had the University of Maryland there, which oh. um, as, as the bachelor's degree school, which is in the DC consortium. So I was able to take 18 credits worth of classes uh, over in Europe that counted when I got back. So I, oh, I was wow. gone for three years, but only lost two. Wow. And then I came back and had a, had a, a guaranteed reserve forces duty, two year scholarship for the remainder of two years uh, was commissioned in May 95 when I graduated from Georgetown and then uh, was in the Delaware national guard for another I think, like four or five years after that. Um, but also basically didn't pay anything for the last two years of Georgetown because oh, the wow. uh, GI Bill and the and the scholarship I've, covered you know, My it. husband yeah, so. was also Army, yeah. and he was uh, in, based in Germany. I'm going to have to pick your brain about that off air because 
I don't ever like talking too much about my personal That's life because then people start asking too much about oh your husband. But yeah, he was army and he was stationed in Germany too, and we're not that far in age from one another. So interesting. Take your brain about that off air. That is super interesting. Yeah, sure. Anytime. Yeah, I don't think I'd we ever to, brought that up to where he was stationed. It, it was an interesting time back then. And certainly, I mean, I was there in Berlin, basically uh, stationed, which was, you know, really unique because it was right after the wall came down. Wow. So they were it was still very much a divided city and divided country. And uh, then then did a tour from there was deployed to the Middle East for the Gulf War uh, situation in 91. Um and uh, yeah, yeah, it was a great, uh, really interesting time to be to be there, to be anywhere overseas, frankly, and to be especially in the military. You were there with the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall, or right after. Right after. Well, let's right not after. age him yeah, that was, much. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> let's not age Tyler that much on his birthday. What is it called? It's like Checkpoint Charlie well, and all of these only, other positions only, that were there. I was only nineteen, so. Well, <laughs> well still, that's... you're look, looking a lot better than your butter, your buddy Hunter. Yes, you're looking a <laughs> hell of a lot better. The hunter who's apparently you know, trying to get his child uh, support cut to a child that he basically never here, met. Go ahead, Tyler. Well, no, I was going to say, uh, you know, it's funny because uh, when I was when I was back in Delaware and in the guard in the 90s, late 90s, excuse me, and we were all sort of hanging out, uh, you know, they had graduated. Bo was uh, he was working for the U.S. attorney, I think, in Philadelphia or something. He's a you know, federal prosecutor for a bit and then came back to town. And we'd, I would see him and I would always razz him about gee Bo, you should step up to the plate you know it's like what what you, you guys ever any of you ever serve in the military <laughs> I, I swear i think he, i think it like he took it to heart oh. he, he did he did ultimately join as you know oh um, after and, he went uh, in as an officer then he he did and i was a little i was a little ticked about the situation actually because uh so the uh i had just gotten out of the of the delaware guard had served my time but i was still in the inactive ready reserve which is called the irr which is sort of the um you know it's like the uh you, you're just you're, you're basically on the books you know what i mean and you're available to be called up if necessary so i was just at the in 2004 started my law practice um had gotten through all the you know all the hurdles and so forth and it just started the law practice when i get this this order, this uh, piece of paper, this like literally just sends you an order. You're called up for active duty for Operation Iraqi Freedom for 680 days. I'm like, are you are you kidding me? I mean, I was at this point, I had gotten out as a captain. Yeah. I had served in the Gulf War. I had done my time in Germany and I was just starting my practice. I, you know, I, and I didn't really, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't have like family necessarily that could like look after my, my house and all this stuff. I was just uh, so I actually put in for a compassionate, uh, well, first, excuse me, that the point is I initially went, I said, you know what, well, if I'm going to go, at least I'm going to go, I could go as an attorney, I guess that would at least ameliorate some of the fact that, you know, I'm just basically going to be on hold now for two plus years, uh, over in the, and so I, so I uh, contacted the Delaware guard and asked them if, uh, they had any JAG positions. And they're like, Oh, Oh no, we don't have any JAG positions. Sorry. I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm a prior service, uh, you know, combat, combat, uh, uh, service that, you know, infantry enlisted and uh, active duty. Oh no, sorry. You know, and, and even the fact that I was a uh, Delaware guard commander didn't matter. And then literally like a month later, they announced that Bo Biden has been appointed to the JAG Corps. No way. The Delaware national guard. Wow. I, yeah, I know. I was like, are you kidding me? I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I've got to go uh, now, you know, as a, uh, it, it was, it is an ordinance officer basically or whatever random they could reassign my, my branch. Yeah. Actually, I was originally branched infantry. Then I switched over to ordinance. Um, and I, yeah, I was, <laughs> yeah, I was not 
not pleased about that. But anyway, do you think that I, that was... I put in for a compassionate, uh, compassionate release from that, and they they granted it, which was very rare. Oh. But my circumstances were certainly, uh, you know, well, in that line was with good. it. So I mean, that was I mean, that was a benefit at the very yeah, least. The I would, GI bill. but the Biden name. I mean, do you think that that was directly related to Bo getting that particular position? Right. Was it daddy's name? Oh, yeah. It was dad. No, no question. I mean, yeah. well, how did, how did Hunter at age 40 get a commission in the Navy, which was a very, by the way, also not just a commission at, you know, at, at that age. I mean, they would cut you off. I mean, if you weren't, if you were more over 30, really, yeah. you weren't, you weren't really in the running. Um, but he was 40 and he got this uh, very plum Navy commission and in a position that, that, you know, regular Navy officers vied for that was very like a very plum position. So he he clearly got that through influence, you know, obviously through his name and then also denied, you know, some Navy officer who was really got wanted that job and probably worked for it for years. Uh, that doc, uh, that opportunity, wow, which is that. and then and then, of course, tested positive for, right. for cocaine as soon as he reported there. and was kicked out. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, amazing. That's, so that's so sad. It's like he gets handed every life on a silver platter. Yeah. And all you have to do is not F up. Yeah. That's just, it. Just don't just, screw up. Just don't F it up. Yeah. And and he does over and over and over again. Yeah. And to 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 add the, you know, even more insult to that, he um <laughs> he tried to say that the Russians must have spiked a cigarette that he smoked. Are you serious? With cocaine. Are you I swear to God, he tried to he blamed the Russians. No. Just like he did with the Ashley Madison uh uh he said that, you know, they they traced the IP address out of Georgetown. He was supposedly a visiting professor there, but he claims the Russians, a, you know, set him up with the Ashley Madison. I'm like, he this was a guy, visiting professor? I'm like, the Russians did it. It's just really. It's, a professor uh, of what? Oh, yeah. Good question. I don't, I don't even know. I don't think it was Pimpology. law. Even. It certainly would have been law. <laughs> oh, it was like, it was like Joe, Joe at the uh, Widener Law, which is where I uh, went my first year of law school. Um in Delaware, uh, you know, I'm a constitutional law professor at Judge Widener. I'm like, well, <laughs> you better, they better get those, whoever those students are back into a remedial class. Yeah. If, if he was the professor, because, uh, yeah. That is um, amazing. Yeah, I, that is amazing. Like that. Well, yeah. And then try to blame the Russians that they spiked a cigarette with cocaine. I didn't do this drug. Clearly, the Russians had something to do with me. Well, you know, he being, did impregnate this woman, though. Well, this, the Russians did this, that, too. They the put Russian a hole in the condom. Must have, yeah. must have done that yeah. in Alabama, too, with the, the stripper with London Roberts. And that's kind of what we're talking about today. I mean, basically, he is going into court and asking for his child support payment to be cut saying that he is broke and is basically out of cash. And again... Financial hardship. Financial hardship. Um, is Hunter Biden poor? Right, I mean, what, what... Tyler, I thought he was selling his so-called his art. artwork for half a million bucks a pop. I mean, I don't know anything about Hunter's personal finances uh, other than, you know, I've seen that he's been involved with deals that are extremely lucrative. Yes. I understand he holds uh, an equity position in this Chinese company that could potentially be worth like half a billion dollars. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that there's plenty of, of, of cash flow, but of course, uh, you know, he, he, he seems to, at least from what I've seen, uh, and, he, and he certainly, when I knew him, he spends it as quickly as it comes in. Um, and he's got, you know, the whole family is, is uh, looks to him to uh, to support you know whatever his uh, to support their payments for this that their and the other yeah. and of course the big guy the big guys cut too you know let's not forget yeah, that yeah that was in the emails that's right but I think it's I I mean honestly I think you know one thing I will say um, when it came to their children um, you know and Joe Joe I, I don't know you know Joe 
portrayed this, but I mean, certainly I think Hunter and, and Bo definitely, they were, they doted on their, their children. You know, they were, they were good parents. Except for this sense. one. And I, I would never fault them that. Yeah. Um, although uh, this is disgraceful though, because, you know, this is clearly first he denied paternity and then was obviously, uh, you know, the paternity test uh, turned that on its head and he was rebuffed and, and, but, you know, they talk about family. And all, I mean, that is Hunter's daughter. Yes. Okay. Or is it daughter or yeah, son? I think it's daughter. It's a daughter. It's his, it, that is his daughter. That is Joe Biden, the president's granddaughter. And they totally snub this this young lady, she's, some she's young girl, this little old. girl. She's yeah. a toddler. Yeah, I, I think it's. I think that's a disgrace, and, it, and it's a, it's a stain on their family, even worse than Hunter's uh, lascivious um, behavior and his treasonous deals is to ignore that young. And now he's trying to cut the cut the money off. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, come on, man. It's like, you know, hey, you she's did. as much your daughter as, 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 as Kathleen's ki- and your kids, right. uh, you know, do, do, do right by that child. That's yeah, so that's awful. right. That's, I just, I, you know, I was talking about how I, I have actually done um, a deep dive into like father's rights, which is a very unpopular topic because everybody, you know, I'm a mother myself, obviously, but I know, I mean, God forbid if my husband and I ever split or I understand my son is equally half my husband yes. as he is mine. And as long as, you know, my my husband wanted to be in my son's life, he will be in my son's life, right? I mean, but God forbid, right? We're, we're married. But I under, I went into this whole thing knowing that, yeah. right? That it takes two to, to tango and make this baby. And there are a lot of flaws. And I admit that, admittedly, there are huge gaping flaws in in um, the the child care uh, you know, between when there's when there's a custody fight, usually in um, any aid being presented from usually dad to mom, right? There's there's huge gaping holes that, there, and this is all done during the Gerald Ford administration. There's financial incentives for the states to pursue. Um, you know, basically, it can become a debtor's prison, right? If you're a deadbeat dad, as they call them, you can literally get thrown in jail for not paying child support, and it can follow you just like college debt forever and ever and ever. But I have a feeling none of this will happen to Hunter. No. No. Well, I mean, you know, I don't think he'll, he'll be a deadbeat with the child support, but he's obviously trying to pay less uh, just because I don't know. He's just, he just is, uh, maybe it's a cash crunch. I mean, you know, honestly, I think it's one of these deals. He has all these uh, investments lined up and a lot of this stuff, you know, the money's tied up. So he had, you know, he obviously had to have his, uh, his um his uh sugar bro yeah. the uh the Kevin Morris the the fantasist and former i guess well still entertainment lawyer yeah. pay for his tax tax arrears which you know was i understand 2 million dollars was it yeah. pretty substantial so i you know i i think i think i hate to say it it's also that uh he probably has a di- you know he probably is still uh in, in the in expo it has exposure for tax liability for all this probably offshore money or you know some of the some of the I mean this is what this is what tripped up Paul Manafort that he was sentenced yes. to whatever it's uh, I think seven years in prison for um, and I think what it is is he's got to put on the show that he's you know he's got to play poor mouth because whoever's watching him uh, from officialdom is going to say uh, you know oh well, you know you've got all this money. you know in other words he's got he's got he's got to pursue every avenue that would indicate at least you know facially that he has no money or that he's somehow broke yeah even if he's got slush funds probably and other people paying for everything because like you said that that the one thing you won't take away from the biden's is that they 
they were taking care of their children and the kids are doted over. But the sad part is this this other kid out of wedlock did nothing wrong. Just was born to somebody else who was, you know, not not officially a Biden, but still this kid is a is a Biden. This kid is not going to experience the same uh, benefits of life of being a Biden That's as right. the legitimate, the so-called legitimate legal kids that have the last name Biden. And, you know, the disparity in their life um, as they grow up, right, they're going to have uh, obviously very different lives. Yes. And there's this one child out there that is that is as much a Biden as the other grandkids is going to have probably some huge level of resentment um, and, and you know, a lot of probably self-loathing because they weren't accepted by, you know, their their actual paternal side of the family. Grandpa. Yeah. I think it would be better that the child does not know who her father is than to know who it is. See, that's what and, and I, I, you know, ironically, um, even though obviously the mother is a you know, adult film, not film, she's, excuse me, she's a stripper. Or yeah, whatever. Okay. I mean, irrespective, she clearly wants to take care of the child and I'm, I would expect her to do so. But, uh, you know, the child might be better off, frankly. <laughs> I don't know. Not man. having Hunter Biden in his life. I mean, her I, life, I, excuse me. I grew up, like I said, with my dad not necessarily being there, few or far between. I mean, habitual liar, wouldn't necessarily um, support, had to be taken to court in order the to. Baby's name is Navy Joan. Yeah, Navy way. Joan. Navy Joan. Yeah, it's interesting. Interesting name. Name, yeah, to put it mildly. <laughs> um, look, it's, it bothers you, right? It screws with you. Your Your sense of. Um, normality, where you're looking at other people and you think to themselves, okay, they have dads, they have all of this other stuff, and you yourself are kind of absent for that. And I get that Hunter Biden has all sorts of issues with, you know, crack or, for that matter, prostitution and all of these debaucherous videos that apparently he keeps doing. But all things being equal, at some point, he may actually grow up. Meaning he may actually get his life together on some level. My dad did at the point where he got much older. He started doting on kids that he basically had um, with somebody else. I guess the thing is, I don't have that feeling that, yes, he is a mess currently. Agreed. And yes, this deadbeat dad stuff where he doesn't necessarily want to acknowledge that this is his kid or the very least tried to deny it and now trying to take money from the kid. All of that is utterly and completely deplorable, thousand percent. I don't have this feeling, though, that he, the kid is better off. I, I very rarely do I think the well, kid is better off than show, one. Statistics show across the board, it is always better for a kid to have both yes. parents. Yeah. If it's po- if both parents Impossible. are alive, right. that is, obviously. Yeah. If possible. Statistically, it shows. But in this case, it seems that he doesn't like, necessarily want to deal with this kid. It's just very sad. I think, the, the, I, I think yeah. the issue is, it's like, okay, the kid is a stripper, for one. The Biden administration, or for that matter, Biden doesn't necessarily want to own that. I don't think right, any of them think... want to really own that, which it looks, it's almost like a stain on the family in a way that they're looking at the kid. The kid didn't do anything. That's kind of my point. Yeah, but is that any worse than having, <laughs> is that any worse than having an affair with your dead brother's wife, the widow, your brother's widow? No, I don't think it's worse, personally. You just had a kid with somebody take care of the kid. And I don't necessarily think he'd get this flat I mean, if he was last... taking care of that kid. Last point on that, because I want to take a hard right turn on, because I know you're into tech and all this stuff. Oh, and I yes. wanted to talk about more about like Janet Yellen today, this morning, talking about the, Price the Treasury stuff. going, no, no, the Treasury going with this digital dollar thing. Oh, right, right, right. Um, I don't know if you've been following that at all, but any final thoughts on this whole Hunter Biden thing on your birthday? I mean, I'm happy to provide 
whatever insights I have just in, on on the latest outrages. But you know, it, it, it's tiresome talking about Hunter Biden. To be honest, I mean, yeah. he's he's a he's a degenerate. Uh, he he is the, you know, he like the point man school, for. Though? What's that? Was he like that in high school? No, not really. Normal kid, not at all. Yeah, yeah, he was very. I mean, he was. Uh, um, you know, I always, I always liked Hunter. I mean, honestly, he was, he was a more down to earth and, you know, Bo was very much the sort of the primping. Um, I mean, they were both, they were both decent guys. I mean, don't get me wrong, but you know, you, they always held you at arm's length though. Everybody uh-huh. was always sort of, you know, um, but they, they were never, um, obnoxious or, or, um, out of, out of hand. I mean, Hunter, Hunter partied obviously back then, but he wasn't, uh, he wasn't some wild man. He wasn't running around, uh, you know, crashing cars and doing anything like that. But, um, but, you know, it's just to me, like, he's he's a sideshow compared to what, what Joe Biden, I mean, Joe Biden's crimes at this point and what he's doing, frankly, his, his, his authoritarian, I mean, this this cast to his presidency is beyond anything I even thought. I mean, I, I knew, I didn't think he'd ever be elected. I thought this man is incompetent and the American people will never, uh, you know, elect him to president and, or anything. And even the Democrat Party <laughs> consistently rejected him. And he was only uh, nominated because they they basically screwed Bernie, um, and he was the, sort of the consensus establishment candidate because the rest of them were pygmies. Um, but that being said, you know, I mean, it's just, uh, I mean, it's it's a frightening time no, that they're I, doing I, now. I, hear you. I mean, and, it, arresting Mike Lindell. I mean, my God, I know. Uh, or, oh, or, or not arresting, but but seizing him. I mean, you know, and uh, the subpoena is oh. going out. I mean, I just, I, I, I never imagined they'd go this far what into ab- like just well, pure fascist. That? What about that, Tyler? What about Mar-a-Lago? It seems like the DOJ and and the Trump attorneys have agreed on uh, Judge Judge Deary, this eighty, literally an eighty-year-old former uh, New York District. Uh, Southern District Court judge turned FISA judge. Um, they've agreed to this dude. Any insight on that? I mean, what's going to go forward with having this former FISA judge there? Because I feel like if you look at the FISA courts, the FISA courts typically rubber stamp everything that the FBI brings to them, mm-hmm. right? 99.7%. And this, yeah. this judge was a FISA judge. But the the Trump attorneys put him up, but they've all agreed to him. I don't. I mean, can can this work out in Trump's favor? Yeah, but quick, there's a report right here. So, okay, federal judge he, on Thursday was, rejected a request from judge Judge Justice Department to allow the investigation to regain access to roughly 100 documents marked classified that were received by the FBI yeah, during the search. But that's at separate Trump. from Judge Deary. I'm, I'm talking oh, about I the see. the. Uh, this is the the judge in Florida overseeing the case that's ah, saying that that the that the FBI cannot look into those documents just yet. Yeah. But I want I want you to hit on this part, uh, Tyler, if you can, about this. You're talking about the special master. The special master being Judge Deary uh, that came out of the FISA courts. Well, I, I, as I understand it, he was one of the judges uh, who the FBI had lied to or deceived. And, and one of the, he signed, signed one of the warrants in the uh, Russian collusion uh, scam run by the FBI amongst others, with inclusion with Hillary Clinton's campaign. And I think that uh, obviously that's why they've probably Trump's people selected him, because this judge had been deceived just as much as anybody else um, by the FBI. So I think they figure, you know, there's not a lot of pickings, really, I think, amongst uh, potential special masters who aren't sort of establishment creatures, uh, swamp creatures in some cases. Uh, So I think they chose this guy because he would be very, they would expect him to be, uh, you know, rather scrutinous 
of more scrutinous of the FBI, uh, you know, cast a wary eye because he'd been deceived before. Um, and that's all I can think of. And then I think the FBI is saying to themselves, well, you know, this guy is, was a FISA court judge. He is, uh, you know, clear, clearly, clearly an establishment guy uh, when you get down to it. So he probably will not vary or, or you know, stray too far, wow. far afield. But at, at this point, I mean, the, the case is shut down, essentially. Uh, and, you know, it just brings me back to the to, to the Russian collusion, um, you know, farce, hoax, whatever you want to call it. Uh, this is a fishing expedition. This is a spectacle. And the people running it are, frankly, criminals who have occupied high levels of law enforcement in this country only because, you know, we have because we have elected criminals or well, because there's a criminal in the White House and because Donald Trump was, frankly, uh, flat footed and, and incompetent as far as cleaning house. Um Fair, you know, that's at, fair. at the Justice Department, and uh, you know it's a, it, and now we all pay the price for it. Let me ask so you know he, hopefully he learned he learned his lesson. Should he be reelected in any way that uh, you can't you can't just sit back and play play nice with these people. Yeah, I get they're the ruthless. Feeling. They will cut your head off at the first opportunity, and they're in the they're in the grip of frankly the Democrat crime syndicate at this point. I get the feeling that when Trump took office, that he was constrained a lot by the Russia investigation. Meaning, look, whatever you want to think about Hillary Clinton. The attack where basically saying Trump in Russia was able to occupy, what, three, four years of the presidency and on some level oh, constrain oh, yeah. his behavior. No I mean, like he was I mean, there were certain people oh, that well, Donald Trump uh, was terrified to talk to because they didn't want to make the association between Trump and Russia. Like that stuff followed him through the entirety of his presidency. Oh, no matter how bogus it was, no yeah. matter how. I mean, the fact is that they occupied valuable public uh Discourse, yes. you know, what, what otherwise would have been discussing, uh, you know, issues of the economy, issues of potentially government reform, yeah. you know, like like instead of being chased by them, he could have talked. He could have maybe accomplished some of the cleaning the swamp that he had talked about. Um, but no, they, they just you know, this was all meant to be not only a distraction from all the criminality of the of the Clintons and, and frankly, um, the swamp generally, but also um, to occupy that space. So that Trump can't fill it with what he had, you know, the people had elected him to do. I agree with you on that. Clean part. up the corruption, and and yeah, and that, but in that sense, they didn't just do Trump wrong. They screwed the public. They screwed the American people over. Well, yeah, know? they put a side. We were denied, the- denied a full, a full, the full, uh, you know, a president, the presidency that that was right, righteously elected. Well, they, unlike I think our current occupant. Well, they basically made this case that Donald Trump somehow got in through nefarious means that he wasn't legitimate, right. and then used basically the Trump and Russia stuff to corral any baby. Meaning Obama didn't give weapons or didn't give offensive weapons to Ukraine. There was no issue. When Trump comes in, it's like, oh, he's not doing it. He's clearly working with the Russians. Right. Like everything that Donald Trump did. Oh no, it's ridiculous. It's I mean, insane. they used to. The fact that they called him a Russian agent yeah. was just, I mean, like, these people are delusional. I mean, it's not even believable for the Democrats' level of bullsh- bull stuff, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, honestly, I appreciate, like, yeah, even I appreciate beyond it their, their insanity, it was like, you got to be kidding Let me. Let me ask you this. I mean, this is just ludicrous. I want to get your take and, um, on the Greg Abbott stuff. Basically sending um, migrants to Martha's Vineyard, sending them to Kamala Harris's house. Right um, in front of her house. Right in front of her house. He's like, all right, here. She's oh, the person saw, who's yeah, in charge of immigration to send it to Nala Harris' house. And, of course, you get liberals who are like, oh, my God. What, you're sending these these migrants here. These people. These people here. Yes. They're unwashed. NIMBY, for, NIMBY for me, not for thee. You yeah. Know? <laughs> it becomes that, right? NIMBY, not in my backyard. Yes. What is your take on that? I mean, for one, I don't think Governor Abbott has broken any laws, even though this is very weird. Well, Abbott's people says that all these people have signed off on a waiver and that they've voluntarily chose to go to these destinations yeah. that were being offered to them. Yeah. 
Well, I think that uh, just uh, the the you know the fact that neither Biden or Kamala Harris have actually gone down to the border to survey the scene or really send anybody. I mean, I don't Mayorkas has probably been down there, but I mean, nobody, they don't want to acknowledge the reality of the massive stream of people that is just, no matter how you cut it, even if you believe in full, like letting anybody in through illegal means is such a strain on our country. I mean, because these, these folks are completely have no resources whatsoever, probably don't speak the uh, at least English and, you know, we're in a, we're in an inflationary economy with potentially food shortages. And, and this is, these are millions of people competing now economically with the rest of Americans for, for, for housing, yeah. for uh, every service you can think you of. You see it in New York. And it's just like, yeah. what are you people? I mean, I, to me, it's, it's. AOC went there, grabbed the chain and cried. <laughs> yeah, she wept. <laughs> Don't she forget. wept at the border. <gasps> it was yes. a beautiful, heart touching moment. <laughs> I know, and she wept at that empty parking lot uh, with the chain link <laughs> fence. I mean, just you know, the, the, yeah, we're dealing with psychopaths here. I mean, these people, just the fact that they would—they're so brazen—and then to say that we're, our border is secure, it's like, my God, people, what are you doing? What are you talking about? I mean, this it is—you know—you're talking two million people. I think have come into the country illegally. This isn't even illegal, you know. On top of legal immigration, there's probably twenty-five to thirty million who are who are here just from all the previous inflow. And, you know, I, and what's crazy is I, I think it was, I forget who has or made a good point that um, the ones that they trucked to or flew to Martha's Vineyard, I guess they hit the uh, illegal immigrant jackpot. I mean, it's kind of crazy, um, but they're from, they're from legitimately repressive. I mean, I think they, you know, they're definitely uh, people if they're coming from Venezuela yeah, who deserve yes, if yes. You remember, asylum, you know? And, is- and so it's like, uh, those people, you know, I, I'm, I mean, I'm glad that they, that I would, you know, welcome them because the, because of the regime, you know, after Chavez, even it's just horrible what they did to that country. Well, that's the wild part, you right? Know? I mean, Biden in the summit of America's, the countries that he didn't invite was Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela. And a large influx of the people who are basically coming across the border are from those three countries. Meaning if you're trying to do anything, about issues of immigration. And look, I remember the speeches that they were having there talking about we're going to control the border, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But you didn't even invite the countries. The leaders. Yeah, of those countries that were basically the main immigration issues. I mean, it's like you guys threw this pageant talking about what you're going to do yeah. for immigration, yeah. but you didn't necessarily even bring the countries that were the mainstays of the immigration issue in the first place. It's just very weird. I mean, look, I, well, you and I are probably yeah, going to differ. It, on how we think of the immigration issue. But I do agree that certain border states like Texas takes a hit for the rest of the nation in a way that we yeah. don't necessarily entirely get a grip on. Um, and Well, I mean, uh, here's the thing. Do you believe in open borders? No, I don't. Okay, well, then we agree. Fair enough, fair enough. But the immigration system itself, I, I would say, is actually broken. Yes, thousand We have backlogs. We have too many loopholes. And Not at some judges. point— yeah. At some point, there there needs to be the cutoff, right? At, at some point, especially in an inflationary and looming, I would I don't know if I would say recession or depression that's coming, but bad stuff happening economically. And then you have, as I mentioned earlier, Janet Yellen this morning at like 7 a.m. announcing that they're moving forward with creating this this digital dollar. This digital dollar yeah. that is backed by the Treasury. I don't know how that is smart or wise when you're flooding the U.S. economy with whether it's real greenbacks 
or digital dollars, because now you're going to, I would say you're creating more inflation, wouldn't you be, Tyler? I mean, if if you're just dumping, you know, thin air money, digital money, or greenbacks into the economy, because whatever, we have to feed millions more mouths every day that come through, you know, come through the borders. Here, let's create a digital currency then. Well, first of all, I would I would note that what's going on at the southern border of our country is not immigration. Okay, it's an invasion uh, because you know these are this is unrestrained flow of millions of people, tens of thousands uh, on any given um, you know week or so, if not more. And so you know to to call it immigration, immigration is the controlled ingress of you know this is not immigrate. This is uncontrolled. Uh, just flow. And so to look at it that way, to me, it's a national security issue. It's a it's a simple law, you know, a, a rule of law issue. It's an order issue. I mean, you know, in the sense, I, I don't mean law and order like the old, you know, the traditional term, but it literally is creating disorder in our society, uh, in our in our country. Um, so that being said, the digital dollar, I mean, if you think about it, look, I don't know what the difference would be. Um, it it It's kind of scary, though, because uh, you know, you think about like the social credit score. You think about like these this, these totalitarian sort of uh, rumblings that are going on um, when it comes down to things like you know the the, the vaccine so called mandates and how they would you know potentially be able to uh, as they were doing up in Canada freeze your money. You know, if you, if you, all you have truckers, are quote, digital yeah, dollars, uh, you know, and they can just literally turn off your money. Control, and they can, I mean, they yeah. can literally destroy someone's life in a, in a heartbeat just with the flip of a switch. Now, I mean, what I'm, what I would say though, is like who, you know, they, they say printing money. Do they actually print every single greenback, no. you know, into physical currency, paper currency? No. no. So really, I mean, everything is digital currency in the, in the sort of most uh, abstract sense of it. In other words, you know, no, it's all, it's all just numbers in a data bank and a computer that's, it's digital. Nobody converts every dollar they have or earn. Uh, well, what they just use the term I mean, printing, but basically they're moving right. money around in digital. Yeah, they're format. just generating yeah. more numbers in a you know in the in, in the digital realm. But I mean, it's all digital, really. The question is, what differentiates this digital dollar currency from currency that is uh, considered you know that's entered into data banks at banks and is you know representative of the number of dollars you own or you know or have a right to? I guess what would be the difference? Is there the some is some feature of it? Can it be more readily, uh, you know, exchange for other cryptocurrencies or is it, are they trying to get into the crypto game? Is That's what I'd have to dig into a little yeah, bit more suspect, to understand. I suspect the issue is control. I mean, you see all of these other cryptocurrencies and many of these things are done in a way where they're like private, like where you don't have control over those particular currencies. I suspect the digital well, dollars I mean, is just their way totally of trying to that's not totally true either with it. crypto because these Bitcoin thieves that have recently been caught, yeah. I mean, it is traceable. Everything is traceable. Just like with the credit card companies, Visa in particular, Visa just passing this new um, regulation that they are going to now uh, force gun gun stores. Yeah to label these purchases just like you would if you're a hair salon, right? Like when people buy stuff yeah. um, with a credit card. So I think to your point, Jamaral, it's it's about control and letting the government know where every single penny yes. goes. And, and with this gun stuff, I mean, I know we're kind of drifting off into that side, but it is, I mean, effectively, it, it's, it's digital currency anyway. With, yeah. If you're using your Visa card, now, now the government will know. Yeah. They will know who bought a gun where, when, all that stuff if you use a Visa yeah. credit card because it's going to have its yeah. own label now. It it's going to be flat. more traceable at this point. 
Yeah, well, go ahead you on know, that. which 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 will just uh, once again, as they as with any of these onerous uh, regulatory measures that that you know are avoidable, people will adjust their behavior accordingly to avoid it. You know, you'll you'll see more cash transactions happening, which which again, <laughs> it's it's kind of like it, what's the result of of, of doing this? It's going to drive probably sales underground potentially or into more black market sales which feeds the criminal market. You know, it's like, so it's like the drug war. You, you think prohibition, they think because they decree something that it's going to f- change the entire landscape of, of the market. Doesn't work that way, and all least. it does is just yeah. uh, distort, distort the market to uh, outcomes that, you know, whether they're, whether they're unintended or not, they're going to happen. So it's just like, you know, I'm sure the, the unintended consequences will typically, uh, you know, for, for these um, arrogant bureaucrats and people who come up with these schemes, you know, will be worse than than anything that they think they're fixing with by trying to create, uh, you know, and track gun sales using yeah, credit think, card companies. I think that's they're trying. Biden is trying desperately to find any sort of victory yeah. he can ahead of the midterm elections, and especially because yeah. he's been harping and railing on guns, gun violence, and obviously Uvalde, which is, mm-hmm. I mean, a, a heart wrenching tragedy. It's yes. disgusting and horrible. Um, all bought legally, and that was their whole point, right? Mm-hmm. Which is why they rallied um, these these consumer groups to get together to say, "Hey, we need to flag every time somebody uses Visa to buy a gun." And this is, you know, at least it presents as a victory for buy, for the, the Democrats Those ahead of the midterms. Very modest victories. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, how would that have changed any of these mass shootings? It wouldn't have. That's the rub, right? And that's always the aggravating yeah. part. We're going to pass regulation that doesn't necessarily right. do anything. Um, Tyler? Yeah, I don't... Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. Final you, thought, final yeah. thought. Oh, I was just going to say, all it's going to do is, as with all uh, gun control laws, it's just going to harm lo- the law-abiding, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and hamstring them and, and, and uh, hamstring their rights. Because obviously, by definition, criminals don't obey right. these laws. I don't so, think criminals you know. are buying it with their visa card. Criminals don't necessarily. Yeah, you'd be surprised. I would. I would point out, though. I don't know how some eighteen-year-old just turned eighteen-year-old kid, living with his grandmother, who hasn't apparently doesn't have any means of support, goes out and buys thousands of dollars worth of expensive yes. uh, assault, you know, weaponry uh, or, or you yeah, know, yeah, rifles yeah. and so forth. ARs are, are usually on average north of six. I mean, bucks. I mean, yeah, where did, did, has it ever been revealed? Like where he got the money? No, no not yet. No one's looked it? into that. Not that so, we've seen. Yeah, interesting. That would be an interesting, interesting. one. Definitely. Tyler. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, my Thank man. Thank you. And Great always to be appreciate with you guys. it. Tyler Great Nixon, way to start the day. Army infantry veteran, counselor at law, constitutionalist, advocate, writer, technologist, critical historian, extremist in defense of liberty, and of course, Roger Stone's lawyer. You can find him at Real Tyler Nixon on Twitter. Um, there's a comment. He literally earned his stripes yes, in he the did. military. He said like, he went in as an army. That's yeah, why I always infantry. meant to ask him that, where I was like, huh. You were infantry. Well, it's fascinating when he talks about the like Germany and being there immediately after the Berlin Wall fell and all, yeah, all this stuff. It's fascinating. That's really cool. There's a um article by the Daily Wire. I gotta repeat this. So Martha's Vineyard resident who was talking about the influx of migrants. And she says, quote, at some point, they have to move from here to somewhere else. We don't have the services to take care of 50 immigrants. We don't have the housing for 50 more people, unquote. Right. And she's looking exasperated. And I can Over under- 50 people. Yeah, that showed up basically at Martha's Vineyard at the a rich, I know, very I know. expensive very area. Very fancy. She got weepy. Yeah. At, at one point, one of the interviews that I saw, she kind of got weepy. Um, it's like, these people. 
I know. Where are these people coming we from? We don't have the resources. Don't have I the mean, resources. We don't have housing for our own people. I mean, she actually said that. Did we she? don't have enough housing for our own people. For our own rich Virginia. folks in so Martha. Like, wait, <laughs> wait. <laughs> you're saying there's there? not enough houses for the rich people to buy more houses right. on this fancy. I've never been All to Martha's Vineyard. All these homeless rich people. It is definitely above <laughs> my pay grade. I've yes. never been to Martha's Vineyard. Um, I, I don't expect to at any time in my no life. Point. No, I yeah, I don't. I don't run in those circles. That's not you know. I'm I'm not that wealthy. Yes, to be able to probably be able to afford hanging out in Martha's. And Vineyard. they probably don't have to see immigrants under normal circumstances. Right. They can just step over them when they get into their limo into the city somewhere. Yeah. You know, but yeah, I. I saw that woman's interview. I don't know who she is to the city, but she has the Debbie Wasserman Schultz yes, hair. Yes, she does. Yes, she does. She looks like like Debbie Wasserman Schultz's sister. Yes, she does. So that's how I remembered. I was like, oh, she looks like Debbie Wasserman Schultz. These people. These people. We, we don't, don't have, have enough housing for our people. own people. We only have four mansions. And we don't live like, with five rich people. I need homeless rich person over there. I need my, my 10 bedrooms. <laughs> right. And eight right. bathrooms. <laughs> I only have eight bathrooms. I only have eight. That's all I have. That's all I have. We can't deal with these immigrants. Uh, but look, you guys listen to Fault Lines. Thomas, Chan, I want to thank our engineers. I want to thank engineer, I'm sorry, one, individual, one. I want to thank our producers. I want to thank my co-host, Manila Thank Chan. you tomorrow. Thank you very Happy much. Happy comeback. And I want to thank all of you. Thank you, Rumblers. Rumblers, radio listeners, everybody else. Fault Lines, Thomas, Chan, you guys have a phenomenal weekend. We'll see you bright and early Monday morning. Have a good one, guys. Lines.